of an angel. The voice of an angel. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Today, we have a phenomenal show lined up. Um, Fox News decided to weigh in on Crystal versus AOC. And uh, of course, they're complete and utter frauds and charlatans, and they like any story that they can posture where they beat up on Democrats. So that's the gist of why they did it, but we'll talk more about it, and I'll show you the clips in question. Um, I'm feeling good, man. I had the breakfast of champions this morning. Combos, cheddar combos. Uh, very healthy. Doctors say you should eat that every morning for a long and um, healthy life. So I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. We, um, we're in the Holy Week right now, so everybody understands. This is Master's Week. Master's Week is holy. Master's Week is um, the only real holiday that I still observe. I don't want to hear anything about, you know, whatever, Christmas, Easter, Halloween, whatever. Whatever holidays you can think of, not interested in the slightest in those holidays. Uh, but what I am interested in is Master's Week. So uh, what just wonderful, wonderful vibes getting right now. Um, I'm going to talk about the huge Amazon labor union victory. That should bring a smile to everybody's face. Uh, I also have the response from Amazon. We have CNBC hosts flipping out over the Amazon labor union victory. Um, we have Republican ghouls who argue against legal weed as it passes the House. Uh, Jen Stocky is leaving the White House, and I'll tell you for what. We have Alex Jones talking about D.C. orgies, and uh, the crying billionaire appears later on in the show. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And we're going to do that with Crystal versus AOC. So last week, I'm sure many of you saw this, um, Crystal and AOC went at it on Twitter. 
So our, we already did a, a segment on this. We, I gave you a, a live response from Crystal herself. Uh, she, you know, she covered it on Breaking Points, her own channel. But the gist of it is this. Uh, Christian Smalls, Smalls excuse me, organized an Amazon labor union victory in Staten Island. He did it without any help from the major unions. It's a small independent union, and they succeeded, which is absolutely astonishing. It's incredible. I don't know if anybody thought they were going to win. I was certainly skeptical. Now, I'm very proud that we had uh, Christian on Crystal Kylan Friends before the vote. Uh, breaking points with Crystal and Sagar, they had Christian Smalls on a number of times before the vote. And uh, in our conversation on Crystal Kylan Friends with Christian, uh, he said in no uncertain terms, look, when the eviction moratorium protest was happening and Cori Bush was sleeping on the steps of the Capitol, he went to Washington, D.C. He was standing in solidarity with them. AOC was there. He had a conversation with AOC, and she said in no uncertain terms, look, I'll be there. Like, what do you need me for? You need me for the union drive? You need me to give a speech? You need me to rally? Whatever, I'm there. Um, he exchanged information with AOC staff. And he was feeling good about the fact that she's going to come and help with the union organizing effort. And then at the last minute, she pulled out. Not only that, but her office started ghosting Christian Small. So he brought this up on Crystal Kylan Friends. And he's just explaining what happened. And so when it looked like the Amazon labor union was on the brink of victory, all of a sudden she tweets out some support. Now understand, not only did she not show up for the Amazon union drive, she also, in you know the final stretch of the organizing effort, she didn't say a word about it, even on her Twitter account. She didn't even, like, tweet some support for the Amazon labor union. Now, it's all speculation as to why this happened, why AOC did what she did. One theory that I think um, sounds somewhat plausible is this idea that um, AOC and perhaps other members of the squad, perhaps Bernie as well, were told from other labor unions, the big established labor unions, like, hey, look, this isn't going to succeed. It's going to fail miserably. You don't want to be associated with them because then when it goes down, people turn and look at you and it will show that your help didn't make any difference at all. There was no dent. It sort of brings down your own profile. So don't waste your time doing this uh, because it doesn't make any sense for you from a political perspective. That's possible. Now, AOC says, well, I had security concerns. That's why I couldn't go. But of course, a couple weeks or a month or maybe two at most later, she was at the Met Gala wearing a tax the rich dress. So, and, and again, like her story keeps changing. Oh, with security concerns. Okay, but then you can even tweet some support. Uh, and then, no, not security concerns. There's a, a list of other reasons that she, oh, it's not in my district. Well, Christian Smalls knows people who live in AOC's district who commute to um, the Amazon facility. So he's like, look, that excuse doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So Crystal was super triggered by the fact that AOC was trying to hop in front of the parade after not being there when it counted, and she just responded and had the clip of Crystal Kyle and friends and said, look, here's the guy who organized the Amazon labor union saying that you left them high and dry. And she was saying, look, I just want to show for the record that this is where you were when it counted. You were nowhere. So, and understand something, guys. The point of the criticism is, hey, next time show up. Next time show up. I'm not going to let you be MIA, and then when the victory comes, you try to hop in front of that parade. That's just, that's disingenuous is what it is. And so I know, again, from behind the scenes, Crystal, Crystal's been obsessed with this issue for a long time. She's always talking to me about the Amazon labor union and, and what Christian Smalls is doing. And she was following the vote count like a hawk. And so when she saw, finally, AOC said something, it, she just sort of snapped and was like, this is fucking bullshit. 
You know, and look, if AOC came out and said something more honest, more authentic, if she if she said, hey, I, you know, I should have been there, but I did have security concerns, so we were cautious. But next time I'll be there. She said something like that, um, or if she had just tweeted some support or something, then there wouldn't be an issue. But there became an issue because of everything I just explained. So now here's where the story's already crazy, but now it gets even crazier. So. The people over at Fox News decided to weigh in on this battle. And um, boy, oh boy, do I have a lot to say about this. You're going to see two clips from Fox talking about it. Then I'll respond. Take a look. Ocasio-Cortez for making a political fashion statement at the Met Gala but skipping a rally for Amazon union workers. Crystal Ball saying, these are your constituents and you couldn't be bothered to show up until they're on the cusp of victory. Ocasio-Cortez tweeting back in part, quote, the warehouse isn't in my district. Not much of a full-throated defensive reaction there. I'm afraid I've never said on this show, AOC is not progressive enough. I, yeah, I'm surprised that we're saying that as well. <laughs> so, this is crazy. So this progressive journalist calling AOC out for going to the Met Gala last summer, but not an Amazon Union rally at the same time. Crystal Ball tweeting, quote this, here's the guy who organized the Union Drive talking about how you left them high and dry. These are your constituents, and you couldn't be bothered to show up until they're on the cusp of victory. Well, AOC responding on Twitter saying, in part, quote, security was an issue as well. 2021 included a lot of high-level threats on my life, which limited what activities I was able to do. So ball right back to this again. This is hysterical. No security concerns at the Met Gala. I mean, wow, punch, punch. But really quick here, you know, as a a local New Yorker as well, I'm a Manhattanite, all these, these shootings and crimes and all these things are happening up in the Bronx in her district, and you never hear her talk about it, like ever. She's focused on her D.C. career. I don't think she cares about New York anymore. I really don't. You know what that reminds me of? That's like the Lori Lightfoot defense, those stories we've been telling about her, about how she has 65 private security in addition to her private security detail. Yeah. Uh, labor force. Uh, apparently, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been called out by a journalist for, you know, she went to the Met Gala, uh, but she skipped an Amazon union rally after she stopped by an Amazon factory from being, well, uh, you know, she stopped that from being built. A big headquarters, 25,000 jobs here in the New York City area. Yes, I don't think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a great uh, sort of partner for America's working families because she doesn't really represent them. She represents the interests which are against them in many ways. Okay, so let's go through this. The obvious point is, the elephant in the room is, Fox News is now posturing as being a friend to working people to own AOC? No, no. As Crystal said so eloquently on Twitter afterwards, like, yeah, AOC didn't show up for the uh, Amazon labor union drive. But if the people at Fox News had their way, they would crush every single union in the country in an instant. So I don't want to hear this, like, faux populist posturing, like, yeah, why didn't AOC show up to the, to the union rally and the organizing drive? Why didn't she do that? That's crazy. Wait, hold on. By your guy's own ideology, you should like that. You should agree with that. Because you guys try to undercut unions and undermine unions and bust them up anytime you possibly can. None of you guys are pro-union. 
So now, note, like, simply to own AOC, simply to say Democrat bad, they're using a, a left-wing line of attack. But they don't actually believe in the left-wing position. So you can't, that doesn't make any sense. It shows, look, what it shows is they don't have any ideological commitments. They will just fling mud against the wall and hope that something sticks. If, they're, if there's a convenient far-right line of attack to use against the Democrat, they'll do it. If there's a left-wing line of attack against the Democrat, they'll use it. Because the main point is just a criticism of a Democrat. Ideological consistency doesn't even enter the equation for these people. They're not remotely ideologically consistent. And so that got under my skin quite a bit. Because, again, it's like, what, what is your guy's actual position? Well, we know what your position is. You would bust up that union in a heartbeat. So if you're being consistent with your own logic, you would, your, your position in this story would be, look, I agree with AOC skipping out on that and not trying to help the union because I don't think any union should be helped. But they, they can't help themselves. It's anything to take pot shots at the left. And so that's what is so incredibly dishonest about this clip. Now, you heard Stuart Barney at the end there say, I don't think AOC represents working people. Okay, uh, she does more than you, Stuart Barney. Oh, she's got many problems, and we're on top of her like nobody's business as a result of that. We hold, try to hold her and everybody who's nominally in agreement with the left to a very, very high standard, as we should. But the idea that Stuart Barney is attacking anybody for not representing working people, you're the biggest enemy to working people I've ever seen. Stuart Barney's whole show, they should just rename it to Tax Cuts for the Rich are Awesome. Like, that's his whole ideology. Cut taxes for the rich, deregulate. I mean, he's totally drunk on Reaganomics. This is a guy who's never met a left-wing policy that he actually supports. There's not even an ounce of populism or even fake populism in Stuart Barney. The idea that He's attacking somebody for not representing working people. Anybody who's seen clips of Stuart Varney's show, do yourself a favor. Go look up Secular Talk Stuart Varney. Do a YouTube search for that. And then have a field day at all the clips we've covered, the various clips we've covered, where he's like fiercest, fiercest opponent of policies that would help working people. And that might not even be even a tiny exaggeration. I remember covering segments of him where, you know, he's against the, a living wage. The guy's against the living wage. Of course, he's against universal health care and Medicare for all. This is a guy who's done a million segments whining about how the rich are oppressed because they have to pay slightly higher taxes, when, by the way, at this point, the effective tax rate for billionaires is actually lower than that of working people. So, God, it's so gross. Now, they also bring up in that clip, the second one there, that AOC killed the Amazon factory from being, another Amazon factory from being built in New York, to which I say, yeah, why did she kill that factory? Look at the specifics of that. Because Amazon was going to get like a multi-billion dollar subsidy. They're, they're one of like the wealthiest, you know, uh, corporations in the country, if not the world. And this factory was going to shake down New York taxpayers. Listen, I am a New York taxpayer. Payer. Do I want my money going towards Amazon to pad their bottom line and, and subsidize them when they don't need it? If you want to build a factory in New York, just build a factory in New York. Use your own money. You have the money. You can do it, Jeff Bezos. But no, they were going to shake down uh, taxpayers. Now, if they 
chose to build a factory in New York, not take a giant corporate welfare check, a giant subsidy from New York taxpayers, and the factory would be unionized, of course I'd be in favor of that factory. But of course at the time, it's not unionized, it wasn't unionized, and they were going to get a whole bunch of corporate welfare, which is my money and your money if you happen to live in New York, going to Amazon when they don't need that. So that's why she was uh, against it, and she was right to oppose it. God, they're, they're so obnoxious. Anyway, so now let's go, that first clip that you saw there, because there's a lot of interesting stuff in here as well. So um, I love the line. So they're nominally talking about unions, and then one of the hosts just immediately pivots to like, AOC, she's not saying anything about all of these shootings and crimes. You never hear AOC talk about that. What the hell does that have to do with the union conversation? In a weird way, the woman who made that criticism is more honest because she can't even pretend to, for a split second to be pro-union to bash AOC. So she just pivots to like, what else do I not like AOC for? Oh, I know. I'm going to say she's really soft on crime and like pro-murder and robbery or something like that. And so they throw that criticism out there. So it's total non sequitur. It's <laughs> total like, here's this other thing. Um, but again, in a weird way, it's more honest because she can't even pretend for two seconds to be pro-union in order to own AOC. She's just like, Somebody else doesn't like AOC or is mad at her for doing something. I'm also mad at her for these other totally unrelated silly things. Um, And then the, the other thing is, look, notice something. Mainstream media has turned this 100% into a media beef story, right? So it's like, oh, my God, Crystal said this, and AOC said this, and they went back and forth. And in a way, AOC has done this as well. Because what's the real heart of the story? The real heart of the story is about Christian Smalls organizing an Amazon labor union, taking on a corporate behemoth, winning, doing it from the ground up, not doing it with any help from established. And so really it's a, it's a story about a young working class black man who stuck it to a, a colossally profitable corporate behemoth one, and now everybody's ignoring him. <laughs> like, wait, why are we only talking about AOC and, and Crystal Ball here? And again, AOC did this too because she kept going back and forth with Crystal on Twitter. Meanwhile, Christian Smalls hopped into the thread and was like, actually, AOC, you're wrong about this, and maybe you should do your due diligence because I know people personally who live in your district and commute to, um, to the factory that, or the facility that I worked at. So Christian Smalls hops in to back up Crystal AOC doesn't say anything to Christian Smalls, and, but she does keep going back and forth with Crystal. And a point that Crystal's made a number of times is that between the way Fox News is talking about this, the way AOC was talking about this, there's like sort of this classist feel to what's going on. Because at, I wouldn't say a racial angle, perhaps maybe a little bit of a racial angle as well, but the fact that he's a working class black man who had this victory, somehow he's like being omitted from the story when the story is nominally all about him and his Amazon labor union victory, but it's only being talked about in the context of Crystal versus AOC. So I think his voice is probably the more important one in the conversation. I mean, I think his voice is the one that needs to be heard. I think what he's doing is the one that, you know, that's the thing that Fox News should be talking about, but they weren't talking about that. They had to talk about it simply from the AOC versus uh, Crystal Ball angle. And then the final thing that, really sticks in my craw too and gets under my skin is this. And go back to the beginning and watch it if you guys didn't pick up on it. Um, this stuck out to me immediately. Perhaps I'm, I'm 
I'm like oversensitive to this kind of stuff. But notice, when they first put that tweet up on the screen of crystals, um, they leave out the first line. They leave out the first line when they're reading her tweet when they throw it up on the screen. Now, later on, somebody says it in passing. But they skip the first line. Now, why did they skip the first line? Because the line says, here's the guy who organized the drive, you know, basically saying, like, you left him high and dry. And in that tweet that Crystal sent to AOC, she also put a link to the Crystal Kyle and Friends interview of Christian Smalls talking about this. It was uploaded, I think, to the Breaking Points channel. It was, you know, a little teaser clip for Crystal Kyle and Friends that we usually put out one or two um, when we record an episode of Crystal Kyle and Friends. Fox News didn't put that video up on screen. They didn't put that video up on screen. They didn't put the link, they didn't put the video, and they didn't read the first line when they put the, the tweet up there. Okay, that was a choice not to do that. Now, why, why wouldn't they do it? Why, why wouldn't they just, like, put it up on screen, read the whole thing, and show the link as well? Because they, they tried to, like, totally bury the entire existence of new media. Who was ahead of this story, guys? Who was ahead of this story every step of the way? It was new media. It was independent media. Again, I'm very proud that we had Christian Smalls on Crystal Kyle and Friends, you know, when nobody thought he had a chance at all. We had him on Crystal Kyle and Friends. Crystal had him on Breaking Points about a million times because she cares about the issue. So she was ahead of the story. Oftentimes, new media and independent media is ahead of the story. Who's been on the ground talking to the Staten Island workers who just unionized? Jordan Chariton of Status Coup. It wasn't CNN. It wasn't MSNBC. It wasn't Fox News. It wasn't the, you know, the corporate legacy media outlets. They were behind the story the entire time. We were ahead of the story yet again. But they didn't even, in a, in a tweet where they basically had no choice but to acknowledge the existence of independent media and independent media being ahead of the story, they omit the, the link, they omit the video, and they omit the first sentence when they put the tweet on the screen. They're just trying to bury the fact that we exist. And further evidence for that theory is how do they describe Crystal? They go on to describe her as a progressive journalist and a, quote, former MSNBC host. Whoa, 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 whoa. Former MSNBC host, that was many, many moons ago. Now, wasn't it? What has Crystal done since then? Oh, I don't know. Built rising on the hill from the ground up with Sagar? Uh, now runs an independent media outlet, an independent media show that regularly is number one in politics on Spotify. Crystal and Sagar are always, you know, jockeying for position with like the New York Times podcast and like Ben Shapiro show on Spotify. But oftentimes they get number one in the politics field on Spotify. So they didn't describe her as the host of Breaking Points, which is number one in politics on Spotify. They didn't, just, they didn't mention The Hill and Rising, again, which they built from the ground up into something wildly successful. They go all the way back to former MSNBC host. They literally just try to whitewash the existence of independent and new media. Why? Well, it could be that they're so, we, we're like a fucking mosquito on an elephant's ass to them. We're so irrelevant that it, you could just dismiss us, dismiss us and that's the default. That's one possibility. It's that elitism and, and that snobbish feeling of like looking down their noses at us. That's one possibility. Another possibility is 
in this new media era, we are direct competition to them. And they don't want to highlight the fact that their competition exists and we were ahead of the story. Now, I don't know which one it is. I'll leave it up to you guys. But, you know, I have personal experience with this as well. When I was one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats, I think literally maybe one of the hundreds of articles that were written on Justice Democrats even mentioned that I was a co-founder. Now, look, now in retrospect, I'm like, okay, that's good because Justice Democrats has lost their way in a number of ways that I've talked about previously on the show before. So now it's not something I'm as proud of as I once was. But isn't that amazing? They just like, if they want to ignore you, they just ignore you. They're just totally indifferent to you. So it could be snobbish elitism where they're just inherently dismissive of anything to do with independent and new media, or um, it's actively trying to hide the fact that we exist because we're competition to them. But either way, it's so fucking grotesque, man. It's so disgusting. And I'm definitely overly sensitive to that fact because we've been dealing with it forever. I mean, and you guys know, I think, I'm fighting an uphill battle here on YouTube because the way the algorithm works, they prioritize authoritative news sources. So CNN is force-fed to everybody, MSNBC, Fox News is force-fed to everybody, and then the independent people like myself and like, you know, many of uh, other people that you guys watch and know as well, we're all fighting an uphill battle because it's like you don't get any algorithmic support in a way that we used to back when we were growing at a tremendous clip. So anyway, there you have it. Fox, I, I get it, like you're trying to own AOC and own Democrats, but of course they had to do it in the most disingenuous and dishonest way possible because as bad as AOC has been on this issue of the Amazon labor union, Fox, without a doubt, has been much, 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 much worse because at least AOC in other contexts has done things to help unions, whereas Fox News, like Crystal said, would bust every, bust every union up in the country if they could. Okay. Next. Okay, so Amazon um, has reacted to the amazing Amazon labor union victory uh, in Staten Island. Let's go ahead and take a look at their statement. They say, we're disappointed with the outcome of the election in Staten Island because we believe having a direct relationship with the company is best for our employees. We're evaluating our options, including filing objections based on the inappropriate and undue influence by the NLRB that we and others, including the National Retail Federation and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, witness in this election. Holy crap. This is Amazon basically claiming rigged election. It's a rigged election. Stop the steal. This, they're going full Donald Trump on it. That's what this reads like to me. Now, the reason this is extra hilarious is what? Remember the Amazon union effort in Bessemer, Alabama? What happened? It's actually been proven now Amazon engaged in a number of practices where they were trying to rig the election and rig the outcome. And by the way, Amazon ended up winning and the labor union lost. But when the NLRB looked into it and looked at all the evidence, they found in no uncertain terms, oh, Amazon was cheating. And so now they've ordered a new election for Bessemer, Alabama. So this is classic projection, classic projection. And this is what we've seen, you know, to bring in the Donald Trump comparison again. This is what we've seen with the Republicans time and time again. They scream bloody murder and like it's the Democrats who are rigging the election as 
they engage in gerrymandering on a, on a regular basis and rig the districts to, to maintain control and keep certain congressmen in power. Of course, there's the, the whole voter ID thing, which in moments of honesty, you've had Republican politicians admit what the voter ID thing is about, which is like, hey, look, we know that this, statistically speaking, it disenfranchises a number of poor people and people of color, and they overwhelmingly vote Democratic. So that's why we're in favor of doing that, because then it helps us win the election. So as they scream bloody murders, they scream rigged election and stop the steal, they're doing a lot of things on their own to try to rig it. And this is exactly what Amazon is doing here. Oh, my God, we think this union rigged it in New York. Yeah, because an upstart with a, a working-class black man who did all the hard work and the organizing, who they raised, like, less than $150,000 on GoFundMe to even try to do this in the first place. Yeah, they have so much institutional support and power. Yeah, the NLRB is bending over backwards to cheat in favor of unions. No. You know who the cheaters almost always are in the context of these fights? The multi-billion dollar corporations that break out all the stops in order to defeat any unionization effort. Because the way they look at it is, look, if there's a union, that's going to affect our profits because we're going to have to pay these workers more. We're going to have to give them more vacation time. You know, it, it balances the power out much more than it is right now. It'll make it so that workers actually have a half of a decent say in the conversation when it comes to negotiating contracts and negotiating the terms. So this idea, it's amazing. They're going to stop the steal. They're saying it's basically a rigged election, which is absolutely comical. I mean, the, look at what's happened to labor unions in this country over the course of the past few decades. I mean, they've been gutted. They've been obliterated. You know, there was a time when a pretty decent percentage of the workforce was unionized. And then over time, that's gotten less and less and less. And now I think private sector unionization is at, what, 10%, something like that? used to be way higher than that. So there's been a war waged by the owner class on working people. And by the way, it's not a coincidence that when unions were strongest, you had the best working class wages. People actually had a decent shot at climbing that economic ladder and social mobility. And everybody thought, hey, the next generation is going to be better off than the previous generation because of all these protections that we've put in place. But of course, it feels like the American dream is dead because we have a gig economy and people are wrongly categorized as independent contractors as opposed to employees, so they don't have a lot of the labor protections that go hand in hand with being an employee. And, you know, they find ways to basically screw workers and pad the bottom line. Well, now, for the first time in my lifetime, unions are going on the offense. They're not playing defense anymore. And this is a, a wonderful victory for unions. And just like with Starbucks, this could spark a wildfire, man where all these different Amazon facilities are unionizing. And I hope that's the case. And by the way, Amazon knows that's the case, which is why they're trying to kill this in the cradle. They're trying to nip it in the bud so that nobody gets any ideas about workers getting paid more and getting more vacation time and having a better shot at life. So uh, just to give you guys some more um, information. So the vote at the Staten Island warehouse was 2,654 in favor of forming a union to 2,131 against. So they won by a decent amount, man. They won by what, about 500 votes? There were 67 challenged ballots and 17 that were voided. Um, I like this quote from Chris Smalls. He says, we want to thank Jeff Bezos for going to space because while he was up there, we were organizing a union. That's badass. Um, 
Now, another warehouse at the same complex on Staten Island, LG, LDJ5, will begin a vote to unionize with the ALU on April 25th. So there's another one coming up. By the way, AOC, if you want to make up for the fact that you weren't there before, okay, do something to help this one. Or other people as well who maybe sat on the sidelines but they shouldn't have, you can get involved. You can do something to help this one. Um, and ALU Vice President Derek Palmer, um, he was outside of the building uh, talking to the media when the victory happened, and he said, quote, but we just went out there and did it. Workers unionizing the second largest private employer in the country. That is an amazing accomplishment. Because, again, this sets a precedent. And it could be a spark that leads to a wildfire. And when you win against one of the largest corporate behemoths in the country, well, now as people start looking around at each other, workers start looking around and saying, well, if they can do it, why can't we do it? And that's why Amazon is going, stop the steal. That's why they're going, rigged election. Because they know what the stakes are. And the stakes are potentially lower profit margins for them, but their workers get treated right. Their workers can make higher wages, have more vacation time, better benefits, and they don't want that. They don't want that. There's been a number of stories about how Amazon wants their workers like overworked and desperate, and then, then they do high turnover. They bring in new people and they ask the old people. I mean, there's been a number of horror stories. You guys know this about what went down with Amazon, where Ken Klippenstein reported that there's been a number of people, the, the truck drivers, who have to piss in bottles and shit in bags, and they've found it in, in the trucks because they're on such a tight schedule that they have to make ends, they have, they have to do their route and make ends meet. And so they, I'll get fired if I stop. I don't want to stop. And they'll just shit in a bag. There's been issues with uh, temperature and climate control in factories where they could be too hot or they could be too cold. Uh, obviously, what Chris Small blew the whistle on was the lack of PPE protections during the height of the COVID pandemic, where you'd watch people throw up and pass out right there on the floor, not being granted time off, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all these issues. The way you fight back against this is through unions. And something really incredible just happened. This is a huge moment, guys. I can't stress it enough. And we are, without a doubt, in a new era when it comes to labor unions excuse me, labor unions in this country. There's a new era. Gone are the days of just playing defense. Now they're playing offense. Look at the John Deere workers. Look at what's happening with Starbucks. And now Amazon, too. Inject it straight in my veins. Okay. Next. CNBC host Jim Cramer um, went off about the Amazon labor union victory. Let's watch some of his fear-mongering, and then I'll react. Well, we know that the union work rules are what everything is about. It's the same case with Starbucks, too. If you can't tell your employees when they work, then you're really not able to have much of an ability to be able to uh, move products or move coffee. And I think that people, the unions will be in charge of time that you need to work. And that would be dreadful for, uh, very dreadful for you, Jasper. And that's just a U.S. picture, right? Yeah. They got Europe to think about as well. Yeah, well, one of the problems with, you know, Starbucks does indeed have unionized places in the ones in the franchise, but if you can't control the work rules, 
no one wants to work certain shifts. So you can say, listen, I'm not going to work that shift. And Amazon would not be able to say, yes, you must work it. The reason why, one of the reasons why Amazon works so well is because people work when Amazon says you must work. I mean, it's such a damning admission there. He doesn't realize what he's actually saying. So you want a business to be able to force workers to work when they say with zero input from the person? What if they have kids that they have to pick up from school or kids that they have to take to school or a sick mother or grandmother that they have to look after and take care of and pick up their medicine? What if they have a super long commute that, you know, in rush hour, it wouldn't make sense for them to do because they'd be in traffic for two and a half hours or whatever. There's a million extenuating circumstances you could think of for an individual worker why it makes sense for them to have input with their own damn schedule. He is in no uncertain terms saying it should just be when the company says full stop. And he's acting like that's a duh position, like it's obvious. And like, obviously everybody agrees with this, right? You should just be forced to work when management says so, and that's the end of the conversation. Jesus Christ, that's dark, man. That is super dark. I mean, I've worked a number of jobs for not great wages in my lifetime. At pretty much all of them, there was a back and forth. There was a give and take. There was like, hey, you know, I'm better with the, the later schedule, you know, the afternoon to evening schedule than the morning to the um, afternoon schedule, whatever. He's like, well, no, the only reason this works is because Amazon basically acts like slave drivers and they force you to do stuff and then you have to do it. That's unbelievable. Now, by the way, he's also probably overstating the um, effects that a union would have. What are unions good for? Unions are good. It's collective bargaining. So it's like, look, if you can negotiate with one of us, you're negotiating with all of us. And so we're all tied at the hip. We all stand in solidarity. And so it has to be a fair contract. So it tries to balance out the power of what is effectively a dictatorial management structure. I mean, look, for all the virtues that we scream from the rooftops about how American, we're Americans and we believe in democracy, when it comes to the workplace, our default setting is authoritarian dictatorship. Now, if you're lucky, you'll get a situation like I just described where there's a little bit of give and take between you and the management. Hey, I like this schedule better than that schedule, et cetera. But really, functionally, the way it works is they tell you to do some shit and then you do it. And unions try to balance out that power uh, difference. They try to say, well, let's, let's talk it through and let's be fair. So let's offer X amount of paid vacation time and, you know, these benefits when it comes to health care and, uh, you know, these hours and everything above that amount of hours, it, you need to have um, overtime pay and we're going to negotiate for uh, a decent amount of overtime pay above and beyond what the bare minimum would be. And, like, this is what... This is what unions are for. It's to try to counterbalance some of the excesses of management. And again, if you just have desperate people who need to pay the bills, who don't see many other job opportunities and they're working for you, there's an exploitative nature to that, right? Where it's like, shut up and do this and no lip, don't talk back. And you really don't have much freedom here. So for him to, to talk about it in, in a glowing way, like the way Amazon currently works, well, we've talked about the way Amazon currently works. Truckers, drivers were shitting in bags and pissing in bottles. You had factories without climate control 
and it'd be too hot in there or too cold in there. Um, there have been people taken out in, in stretchers during the height of the pandemic. There, were no, there was no PPE, and people were passing out and throwing up. This is what Christian Smalls talked about. It was a nightmare in there. It was a nightmare. There's a thousand different issues with how these factories work. And this is just an attempt to address those issues through collective bargaining. Guys, if you look at the history of the U.S., when we had our, the highest rate of unionization in this country, we had the strongest working class that we've ever seen. And we had a middle class that was the envy of the world at the time. Ever since there's been a war waged on unions because of that and a variety of other factors, you know, it's been a decline. And now our working class isn't nearly as healthy as it once was. We're trying to get back to sanity. And even that, look, it is debatable. You know, as a little hat tip to the people who are to the left of me, it's even debatable as to whether or not that's enough to just have unions, uh, you know, negotiating with management. A lot of very serious intellectuals believe deeply in this idea of workplace democracy. What if, you know, uh, it, it functions in a much more egalitarian way, a much more small-D democratic way, and everybody gets a vote and everybody gets a say with everything in the company? Now, now that doesn't mean that you abolish all management or whatever, but no, you would democratically vote on who you want to be in management. And, and you could still do division of labor, but you would democratically vote on, on who does what. And that system potentially is a, a lot better even than just unionization. Because you have the, the conflict when you have a union set up of the workers versus management, which is an honest system because it, it highlights the fact that there is a conflict between what management wants and, and what the owners want and what the workers want. But perhaps it'd be an even better situation if you, if you democratize the workplace. And think about how far away Jim Cramer is from having that conversation. I mean, he would think it's the craziest thing in the world that he's ever heard to maybe have a democratic workplace. I mean, there are some com companies, there are some worker-owned co-ops in the U.S., and there's some other countries that have worker-owned co-ops. And my understanding is it's not some tremendous detriment where all those companies fold instantly. But he's, he, is, he loves the authoritarian, authoritarian nature of the way it works. And he's incredibly hostile to any attempt to shift that balance of power, even if it's just a little bit. Even if it's just a little bit. So it's stunning to watch. Now, again, just to give everybody the update on what happened with the Amazon labor union, the vote was in Staten Island, and uh, it was 2,654 in favor of forming a union, 2,131 against it. So one by about 500 votes, that's amazing. That's such an amazing victory. Again, with no help from big established unions, they did it the independent way. It's like a small startup union for a guy who used to work there, who had a lot of relationships there, and he won. I mean, this is some heroic stuff, man. He said to Crystal and Sager, and I think the first interview that he ever had with them, basically like, I might spark a revolution here. And it looks like that's what he did. God damn it, it looks like that's what he did. And I will say here, uh, from a selfish perspective at the end of the clip, um, Recently, whenever I've shown CNBC clips, I've been hit with copyright. That used to not be the case that they copyrighted CNBC clips. Now, maybe it was a one-off. The clip recently that I'm thinking of is uh, that Joe Biden, Joe Biden was giving a speech about uh, Russia and Ukraine, and they knocked me with copyright on that one. I don't know why. I mean, you'd think it's like, you know, public interest, right? You have the president talking about war and peace uh, on the news. You would think that of course, it's fair game to play that and then comment on it. Well, apparently it wasn't because they hit me with a copyright. And, of course, when they copyright you, they have a number of options. They could, like, pull down the entire video. But most of the time what they do in a situation like that 
is they just jack all of your revenue for the video. So like they'll keep the video up, but they steal the revenue that you make on the video. So anyway, if you support this show, I would really appreciate it if you, you know, donate a dollar or two on Patreon. The link is in the video description box below. Because again, I've seen like an uptick recently in copyright where things that used to not be knocked for it are now getting knocked for it, which means they just keep stealing more and more of the revenue. I mean, think about that. Like, this is like an independent new media outlet, kind of a small outlet, relatively speaking, compared to the big boys. And what, CNBC is going to jack my revenue? Does that seem like a fair system? Does that seem like it makes sense? I definitely think it doesn't make sense. So anyway, I don't know if this video is going to get knocked as well. I don't know if they're going to jack the revenue, but um, I have been seeing an uptick of it recently. Uh, The most recent example was a CNBC clip. So if you support this show and you like what we do, help out on Patreon. I'd really appreciate that. Or another way you could help is uh, sign up for Crystal Kylan Friends. You pay $5 a month and you get the video of it a day early. You can still listen to it for free uh, if you're if you don't sign up on Substack for the $5 a month, but you just get it, the audio version, a day later. But yeah, especially for that show, Crystal and I still have decided we're not taking any ad money. We're not taking any corporate money for that show. We've tried to build it like this very pure way with small dollar, don- small dollar donors only from the bottom up. So anyway, there's a number of ways you can support the show. I'd really appreciate it. And let's just hope that there isn't like a real tidal wave of copyright stuff and, and patent sharks out there because God, it's so fucking annoying. I don't know. Listen, if you're somebody else who's a YouTube creator who's out there listening to me now, tell me what your policy is because I'll tell you what my policy is. I am super lenient with it. I mean, I've, of course, I've let people play my clips where it's like over 50% of the video of me talking and them responding to it and shitting on me relentlessly. And I'm still like, hey, by all means, go right ahead. So I'm particularly lenient when it comes to patent stuff and copyright stuff. And it annoys me to no end when others aren't, especially when they're like a major corporate media outlet. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So yet again, this is just another way that YouTube or, you know, other big companies can pull the rug out from underneath independent media like that. And so anyway, there's my pitch. Sorry to end the segment on a selfish note, but I felt like it was important to throw that out there. But the bottom line here is Jim Cramer is a piece of shit. And he very clearly embraces the authoritarian and dictatorial nature of the way our system works now, our capitalist system works now. And even a slight shift in that balance of power, and he loses it. He freaks out over it. He throws a tantrum, and that's beyond absurd. All right, next. So we have some good news. Um, we'll see how far this actually goes, but at least as of right now, it's good news. Weed has been officially decriminalized through the House of Representatives. So let me tell you what it says in PBS here. They say, ooh, I just lost my place. Um, they say the measure would require federal courts to expunge prior marijuana convictions and conduct resentencing hearings for those completing their sentences. It also authorizes a 5% sales tax on marijuana and marijuana products that would be used for grant programs focused on job training, substance abuse treatment, 
and loans to help disadvantaged small businesses get into the marijuana industry. So decriminalizing it, nobody can be locked up anymore for weed, and then it does those things that I just laid out for you there. Now, if I was emperor for a day, you guys all know, I'd go further. I wouldn't just do this. I would legalize it throughout the country, and I'd have, you know, regulatory guidelines as to um, what's allowed, what's not allowed. Uh, You know, you might want to take a look at it similar to the alcohol industry. You look at the regulations they have set up for that, and you have a loose framework that's largely along those lines. Um, So, I mean, this is a good thing. Without a doubt, it's a good thing. Now, they tried this once before in 2018. They did a similar thing in 2018 where I think they took took marijuana off the uh, federal substances list. It's a Schedule One drug now, which is lunacy, and they dropped it in 2018, but then, of course, it was killed in the Senate, and now it looks like a similar thing is happening. This has passed the House, but now it goes to the Senate where it might hit a bunch of roadblocks. So either way, it's good because it got through the House, and that's a, a hugely positive step. I do have, though, Republicans were dead set against this. So the total vote breakdown in the House was 220 in favor of decriminalizing weed and 204 against it. Now, I just want to reflect on that for a minute, because in the country, the most recent polls in the country, 70% of the public wants to legalize it, 70%. But it's a lot closer to 50-50 in the House, 220 to, to 204. The only GOP yes votes, Gates, McClintock, and Mast. I don't even know who McClintock is, other than an old John Wayne movie where he played a hilarious character. Um, and then there's only two Dem no votes. It's Pappas and Quillar, who, by the way, Jessica Cisneros is running against Quillar. Vote for Jessica Cisneros. She's about a zillion times better than Quillar. Um, but every, everything else was pretty much straight down uh, party lines. I have some amazing video here for you. This is Republican ghouls arguing against legalizing marijuana, or, I'm sorry, decriminalizing, legalizing would be a step further, just decriminalizing marijuana, making horrendously stupid arguments in the year of our Lord 2022. This amendment recognizes the fact that the majority is blindly leading us down the path of marijuana legalization. The information to be provided by these studies would, be, would better serve this body and the children of America if we had it before legalization. Last year, the percentage of American employees testing positive drugs hit a two-decade high. This jump was driven by an increase in positive marijuana tests. This amendment is merely window dressing on a bad and incomplete bill, rather than tackle the actual problem of marijuana abuse at the workplace, which could have disastrous consequences. Democrats simply want to study the issue. The first would have required child-resistant packaging and a Surgeon General's warning label detailing the danger these products pose to pregnant women and their unborn babies. Investigative reports have revealed multiple instances of pot shop clerks recommending marijuana to expectant mothers as safe, despite well-documented risks. Few, if any, of these retail clerks have any medical training and should stick to dispensing pot, not prenatal advice. The second would have banned the use of ingredients or flavor additives in marijuana-infused products such as fruit, chocolate, vanilla, or candy. 
For years, we have been told by many on the other side that such flavors appeal to children and should be banned from tobacco products. If this standard is, so, is good enough for Juul and Puff Bar, shouldn't it also apply to Cheech and Chong? Kukov, you and your written testimony, and then several years ago, mentioned the potential role of marijuana, cannabis, upon the adolescent brain as being a precipitator of, you, of serious mental illness. Is that a correct statement of your concern? Definitely, this is one of the areas that we are most concerned of with the legalization of marijuana. So let me ask you, that would suggest that states which have had a uh, more liberal uh, legalization of marijuana, say Colorado, would have an increased incidence of serious mental illness among adolescents and young adults than a state with more restrictive laws and presumably less uh, prevalence of usage. Is that a finding that you've had? In the United States, uh, there are no studies that have documented that. In Europe and across the world, yes. Uh, now, hang on. It's documented that, that more relaxed legalization of marijuana is associated on a population scale with increased incidence of serious mental illness, just to be, just to be sure? Specifically, in the United States, legalization by some states of marijuana has not been associated with an increase in adolescent marijuana use. That is something that has not... Now that surprises me because increase, if, we, if you relax blue laws for alcohol, there ends up being more alcohol used by adolescents in that given county or parish. I love that last clip. That last clip was awesome because he's trying to get his cheap talking point out there and... She's like, no, that no, that it, it didn't it didn't work like that. No, he's like, well, what about will there be an increase in mental illness among kids because more kids are going to use it when we legalize it? She's like, well, there's not exactly evidence of that. <laughs> and he keeps reiterating the point, desperately trying to get to it. So look, look at look at these arguments. Most of the arguments boil down to, what about the children? <laughs> Hold on, hold on, hold on. We live in a country where pornography is legal. Now, nobody wants children to be able to consume pornography, but pornography is illegal. Would you use the existence of children as an argument against the legalization of pornography for adults? Same thing with alcohol. Alcohol is legal in this country. We went through a period where we had it illegal, and it was an absolute fucking mess. It led to an increase in organized crime and mafia activity and old school alcohol cartels. And there was a giant spike in crime because it was affiliated with the black market sales of alcohol. I mean, this is what happened with prohibition. Prohibition was an absolute disaster. But would you use the existence of children to argue against alcohol being legal for adults? Of course you wouldn't. But this is what he's saying when it comes to marijuana. <laughs> what about the kids? What if some percentage have an increase in mental illness? I'm sure that alcohol being legal has led, in some instances, to not only kids end up drinking, certainly people under 21 end up drinking, and some percentage of them maybe start off down the wrong path and they become alcoholics or it exacerbates some underlying issue of bipolar disorder or paranoid schizophrenia. Again, does that mean, well, then we need to buy an alcohol for everyone? Of course not. Of course not. You look... The main point is this. Whatever happened to these people who love to pretend freedom is the thing they care about the most? 
Clearly, that's not the thing they care about the most. Because this is a basic freedom issue. Can an adult put in their body what they want to put in their body as long as it's not hurting anybody else? And the answer is yes. In a million and one ways, Republicans like to cloak themselves in this idea of freedom. We believe in free speech and free expression. That's what we believe in. But then they turn around and they're like, don't, don't put that in your body. I should lock you up in a cage if you do that. Do not put that in your body. I mean, it's just, it's preposterous. Every argument boils down to, what about the kids? There was one person who was basically saying, well, what about pregnant women? Again, alcohol is legal. Yes, a woman who's pregnant probably shouldn't be consuming alcohol on a regular basis, but is that an argument to ban it for the entire country? Because what they're doing is, it's a red herring. They're, they're mucking up a separate issue to argue against a broad society-wide ban. The part where it's the most naked there is like the guy talking about, well, why sh- we should ban you know, fruit-flavored marijuana products and chocolate-flavored marijuana products and vanilla and candy-flavored marijuana products, to which I say, fuck off. No, you shouldn't, because some people want that. Now, if there's, even if there's like a tiny increase among kids who have it illegally because of the flavors, I don't think that's an argument in favor of banning it. That's an argument in favor of better enforcing the rules and regulations to make sure the kids don't get them. That's all that is. Don't take it away from everybody for that reason. I mean, you would think that nobody would argue against this at this late date, or if they were to argue against it, they'd have better arguments than, what about the kids, and what about pregnant women, and what about mental illness and stuff like that? We have, okay, there are a number of things in modern-day society which could lead to an increase in mental illness. Isn't that obvious? But do we ban all of those things? Because some people might take it too far in certain aspects of life. Is that an argument to ban the entire thing? I'm sure there are people who go too far with video games and get addicted to video games. Should we ban video games? Because some people might ruin their life and not be able to function in the real world as a result of it? No. No. Just like you shouldn't ban alcohol. Just like you shouldn't have marijuana banned. Just like you should have legal, tax, and regulated drugs across the drug spectrum. Again, if they're going to make these arguments, they should at least be honest and drop all of their virtue signaling about belief in freedom, because they do not believe in freedom. My, look, my, my political ideology and my worldview wants to offer people maximum freedom on social issues, where you can basically do whatever you want to do as long as you're not hurting anybody else. And when it comes to the economy, I believe in economic security, where the floor, the bare minimums are, are already met. So you're going to be okay no matter what, but then after you're okay and we take care of the basics, then it's on you to go ahead and do whatever you want and you know, make money however you want to or can make money. So, but that's my worldview. And honestly, even, even the idea of economic security kind of rests on this notion of freedom because are you really free if you have no material well-being at all? Like you don't have a roof over your head, you don't have food in your belly. You're not free in that situation. You're free to be homeless or you're free to die. Are you really free if you don't have health care? No, you're free to get sick and die of some treatable illness. So it all, like the underlying thing there, the connecting tissue is a belief in freedom. And they do not believe in freedom by any stretch of the imagination. They are, they're authoritarian traditionalists. That's what they are. So in other words, they think, well, marijuana has been illegal for a really long time. So isn't that a reason why it should be illegal? 
No, that's just a dumb idea based on blindly following tradition. Well, this is the way it works now, so isn't that how it should work moving forward? The way it works now is we have 30 million uninsured people. Does that mean we shouldn't expand health care and insure more people? The way it works now is there's probably over a million homeless people. They say the official number is 400,000. I don't buy that. It's way more than that. There's probably over a million homeless people. That's the way it works now, so we should stay like that. If you're homeless, you should stay homeless. This is like part and parcel of conservatism. The idea that, hey, don't change things too much. We got a sweet deal the way it works right now, so just leave it as is. And this is what they're doing when it comes to uh, marijuana policy. And again, I want to reiterate something. 70% of the country wants to legalize marijuana. It's a majority of Democrats, a majority of independents, and in some polls, even a majority of Republicans want to, want to legalize marijuana. So they are telling their own constituents, we don't agree with you. Now, if I was a, an elected Democrat in this scenario, I would, oh my God, I would destroy these people over this. I would be ranting and raving against them on a regular basis. I would give speeches on the floor of the House or the floor of the Senate. I would go in the media and and rail against them and their idiocy and their stupidity and their authoritarianism. They want to control your life. They want to lock you up in a cage because you partook in a substance that ever so slightly changed your consciousness. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So there you have it. I mean, these ghouls, absolute gremlins, are arguing against legal marijuana in 2022. And there's an even more important aspect to the story, which is how many lives have been ruined as a direct result of the drug war? Millions? People locked up and then they can't get a job afterwards for something as silly as selling a little bit of pot? Are you kidding me? And they're in favor of that system. So again, that is rank authoritarianism. That's what that is. They want to ruin lives over something tiny like that, nonviolent offenses. And uh, they are propping up that system. They support that system. And they're even supporting it with the majority of their own constituents against them, a majority of their own voters, a majority of people in their own party against them. So you've got to make them pay a political price for this. And if I'm Joe Biden, I would just legalize it through executive order because he can do it. But unfortunately, he doesn't want to. That puts him in league with the Republicans, being a drug warrior. And it's absolutely pathetic. It's super pathetic. So there you have it. I want to hear what about the kids or what about the pregnant women or what about the fruity flavors. The fruity flavors are based. And I don't want to hear about, what about all the potential increase in mental illness? By the way, these are the same people who would turn around and say, let's not have universal mental health care as a policy in this country. They're fear-mongering about a rise in, of mental illness, but then they wouldn't support a Medicare for All system that would include mental treatment, that would include therapists and psychologists and rehab centers and things of that nature. They're disingenuous hacks and they've never been more wrong than they are on this issue. Let's take a break. When we come back, Jen Psaki, Jen Psaki to me, is uh, making moves. Stay right there, y'all.
All right, y'all, we are back, baby. We are back. Let's continue, because I still got a lot to get to. Okay, let's talk about Jen Psaki. Jen Psaki, uh, of course, is the White House press secretary, and she's been doing it, I think, the, the entire time Biden's been president. But um, she is now leaving the White House, and she's doing it for the most Jen Psaki-slash-democratic reason ever. Listen. I'm reporting that you were able to confirm here uh, late this week about uh, the future of the press secretary, Jen Psaki. It sounds like uh, in a couple of weeks, a couple of months, you'll be asking your questions to someone new. What, what's this uh, reporting you can share? So we have confirmed from a, a source familiar with the situation that Jim Psaki will be leaving her post here at the White House in the coming weeks, sometime this spring. She's going to be taking a job at MSNBC. Uh, I was told that there was a bidding war between CNN and MSNBC to get her on board. There are some, you know, legal stipulations about how she has to go or, go about her departure um, and, and contract signing mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, federal ethics rules. So she wants to be, you know, have her eyes dotted and T's crossed on that front, but we do know she's going to be leaving. There have been some reports from other outlets, which I don't have the details on, but Axios, for instance, reported that uh, she's going to be taking a, a show on Peacock, which is their streaming service, and then would also um, you know, lend her voice to, to programming on, on the cable channel during the day as well. The timing of the departure is not a big surprise, right? Jen's kind of talked about not being on board for, for the full first term, right? Yeah, she, we've known, you know, for a while that she was going ahead of, I think it was, you know, pretty much soon after she got into this job that the expectation was that she would do it for a year. Um, you know, she was out of government before this, um, after having been in government for the you know, Obama administration. So she sort of came back to this government job and didn't plan on staying in it long term. And a year is, you know, it's a good run for a press secretary. So there you have it. It was originally reported by Axios. It's being confirmed here by a Fox News reporter that uh, Jen Psaki is going to leave the White House for a cushy MSNBC hosting gig. There's other reporting that there was a bidding war between CNN and MSNBC to get Jen Psaki. A bidding war. So I don't know. How many millions of dollars is she going to get paid to now have a corporate media hosting gig? I don't know. This is on top of, by the way, Mick Mulvaney, who was in the Trump administration, he was just hired by CBS. And they invited him on the air to talk about Biden's um, proposal for a billionaire tax. And Mick Mulvaney, for those of you who don't know, is an absolute charlatan, Kool-Aid drinking, far right winger. Um, He is an Ayn Rand type, a Milton Friedman type. You could probably even argue a Hayek and von Mises type. I mean, he is all in on deregulate like crazy, cut taxes for the rich. Uh, And they presented him as some sort of neutral, objective voice on the topic of economics when talking about Biden's proposal to tax billionaires. So what you see here is, what you see here is mainstream media, they're so far gone that they're hiring like people whose job it was to be literal liars and propagandists. 
like everybody knows what the job of the White House press secretary is. It's to spin on behalf of the president. It's to lie when necessary on behalf of the president. Your job is to give the line of the White House. Be damned. You know, evidence be damned. Proof be damned. It's go out there and put your spin on it. And CNN and MSNBC had a bidding war over it. And then CNN had the nerve. I don't know if you guys remember this, but a couple of years back, they released that smug-ass commercial where their whole thing is like, this is an apple. It is not an orange. CNN, facts first. <laughs> facts first. <laughs> facts first? And why are you hiring a, a, a paid liar? Her whole job is to lie. Her whole job is to protect the image of the president and the White House. And again, I'm going to shudder when I look at her contract, because I guarantee you it's millions of dollars. Um, and they said here, now I don't know if this part is true, but they said here, oh, she's going to go to Peacock, which is the streaming service for NBC. If, the, if she goes there, that would be hilarious. Because just like with, you know, CNN Plus and how that imploded in a day, I'm sure Peacock is in a very similar situation. The thing that these people don't understand is that the whole idea of going to a streaming platform or going to YouTube, going to new media, is, is to escape the bullshit of old media. That was the whole idea. People wanted to go to YouTube to get an, an alternative voice to the mainstream narrative. People like streaming platforms when they offer some unique, interesting, entertaining stuff, like when Netflix has something that's, you know, uh, a great show that costs a shitload to produce and it's not something that would have made the cut to make it in a movie because it would be too big of a risk or to make it to TV because it would be too big of a risk. They're just taking the, the trash that is normally on mainstream media and they're now just making you pay for it via streaming. And that's why CNN Plus, we spoke about this the other day, they basically imploded in a day. They were offering 50% off on their first day because their sales to that point had been abysmal. It turns out people don't want to hear Anderson Cooper's parenting tips. People don't want to see Jake Tapper's book club. People don't want the standard garbage that they don't have to pay for to see on regular CNN to pay for it to see it on CNN+. Plus. They don't want that. They don't want that. They're going to pay her millions of dollars to go on Peacock where about 17 people will watch her. And the only devastating point about all this, the devastating part, excuse me, is that we're never going to know how bad their ratings are because they can hide it. CNN Plus is already in talks to be bought out by, like, uh, discovery because they're doing so poorly they're like oh, we just got to dump this already a and I'm sure Peacock's in a similar situation how are you going to pay millions of dollars to uh, somebody whose job was to lie and to be a propagandist to go on your streaming platform look what people what a lot of people do want in media and what everybody should want in media is first and foremost to give you actual information, like to give you actual news and data and, yes, facts about the world that are unfolding in real time. So you need a trusted source to give that. And then beyond that, honesty and authenticity. That's what people want. And, yeah, you'll have different ideological perspectives, and that's fine. Some people will disagree on various things. But the information has to come first, and then you need to be honest and authentic in how you present that and what your take on it is. And that is not at all what you get from these outlets. If you hire Mick Mulvaney at CBS and Jen Psaki at MSNBC, you, like, you're just going all in on conventional wisdom garbage and partisan hackery. And all you're doing is, let me give you the Republican Party position 
the elite D.C. Republican Party position and the elite D.C. Democratic Party position, and I got news for all of you, the elite D.C. Democratic and Republican Party positions are bogus. It's nonsense. It's trash. They're liars. They're playing defense for the establishment. That's what they do. So you're not getting a truthful perspective. You're not getting, uh, you know, real news and a real honest take. You're getting the spin. Spin doctors left and right. Not a bad band. They get a bad rap, the spin doctors. I don't think they're that bad. That might be a hot take. That might be controversial. But for real, they have some bangers. So anyway, look, Jen Psaki probably getting millions of dollars leaving the White House to go be a paid propagandist. She's leaving her job as the official White House liar to go lie for the White House at a media outlet. And that's now everybody understands the dynamic of the mainstream media outlets. Fox News, their whole job is to lie for the Republican Party. MSNBC and CNN, their job is to lie for the Democratic Party. And then you have outlets like CBS where they try to lie on behalf of both parties, which is why they have Mulvaney, and I'm sure they have some Democratic hacks on there as well. I'm sorry, but, you know, look, independent media, new media, we have our own problems. We have our own biases. And I'm honest and open about that. I've seen it, I've seen it with my own two eyes. Like, for example, this idea of audience capture, only telling the audience what you think they want to hear. That's a big problem in independent media and new media. But I would take independent and new media 10 out of 10 times over corporate media and traditional media. Because at least every now and then, you get real shit. And by the way, I'm not even just talking about commentators, of which I am one. I'm more of a pundit and a commentator than just a, you know, a hard news guy. But if you look at the independent media outlets that do real investigative reporting, they're the best of the best. You know, like Jordan Chariton and Status Coup, like what used to be called the Daily Poster but is now um, Lever News. There's a number of outlets, uh, More Perfect Union. There's a number of outlets that they're doing the stuff that MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News should be doing. And unfortunately, they get no recognition, no love, no money. It's, it's, tr- it's truly unfair. It's truly disgusting that you have the biggest hacks in the country, the partisan, conventional wisdom spewing messes. They have all the money, all the corporate backing, and they shape the national dialogue. And then the real investigative reporters have next to no money and, you know, unfortunately not the biggest audiences in the world. And that's a travesty, man. It really is. It really is. And that needs to change. But there you have it, another disgusting example of the cesspool that is D.C. and corporate media. And um, I don't know why anybody would have expected anything different at this late date. Maybe I'm naive, but I would have hoped to not see Mick Mulvaney be hired by CBS and Jen Psaki go to MSNBC. Okay. Next. So Madison Cawthorn, of course, got in hot water recently because he, uh, he said that he was invited to orgies in Washington, D.C., and he'd seen other politicians do coke right in front of him. Um, now, Kevin McCarthy called Madison Cawthorn into his office. Of course, he's a Republican leader, and, you know, he basically pressed him on it and tried to get him to retract it and um, said, well, if it's real, then name names. And there was a picture that came out of the meeting where it looked like Madison Cawthorn had been crying. He had sort of a, a red and puffyish face. He looked like he was 
tearing up when he was talking to Kevin McCarthy. Um, well, after that, Madison Cawthorn sort of doubled down on the original claims that he made, but he did it in a very bizarre statement that I now want to share with you guys. So let's go ahead and take a look, and I'll read it for you. Statement from Congressman Madison Cawthorn. Corruption and unethical activities exist in Washington. True. It's an indisputable fact. If you don't think that's true, you've not witnessed the swamp. My comments on a recent podcast appearance calling out corruption have been used by the left and the media to disparage my Republican colleagues and falsely insinuate their involvement in illicit activities. Okay, now it's getting weird. I've considered for several days how best to address this controversy. The culture in Washington is corrupt. Human nature is fallen. Compromising activities occur because when other people can place you in compromising positions, they control you. It's all about power, but my colleagues and I are fighting that corruption. Uh, Western North Carolina, you send me to Washington to change the culture. If you want Washington to operate without accountability, send someone else. If you want someone who will throw the entire D.C. swamp into a meltdown because I call out corruption, send me back. The left and the media want to use my words to divide the GOP. They are terrified of Republicans taking back the House and seeing Leader McCarthy become Speaker McCarthy. Their efforts to divide us will fail. I will not back down to the mob, and I will not let them win. I will continue fighting for many years to come. Okay, so I love this for so many reasons. Now, look at the wording there. So originally it was, I've seen people do coke right in front of me, and I've been invited to orgies. That's the original claim. Now notice, any of those claims are now gone. He doesn't mention the coke thing. He doesn't mention the orgy thing. Now that's out the window. Now how does he describe it? Corruption and unethical activities in Washington. Well, yeah, we all agree that there's corruption and unethical activities in Washington. But that's not the original claim you made. Do you know what corruption means? When people talk about corruption, of course the thing that pops to mind is financial corruption. It's politicians doing the bidding of their donors. That's corruption. That's what corruption is. But he's doing like a little bait and switch here and playing with words to try to like make his criticism sound less sensational while also somehow doubling down on it. So then he says, well, this is being used by the left and the media to disparage my Republican colleagues. Yeah, but you said it's people you looked up to who did the coke in front of you and invited you to orgies. If it's people you looked up to, it's a Republican who did it. Because you hate Democrats. You admit that you hate Democrats. You're a partisan Republican. So when you say, I've seen people do coke in front of me and I've been invited to orgies, who's, who's doing it? It ain't Cory Booker who's inviting you. <laughs> like, what do you think? Elizabeth Warren is doing key bumps? Mm. Madison, you want some of this? That's, we know that's not what's happening. We know that's not what's happening. It obviously had to be a Republican. But now, and this shows you, when push comes to shove, his partisan hackery wins the day. Because he's like, no, 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 I must protect Republicans. I must protect the good name of the Republican Party. When, Matt, when uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy talked to him, to Madison Cawthorn, Cawthorn got the message of like, hey, I need to go out there and protect the image of the Republican Party and try to deflect criticism and blame the left. But it wasn't the left inviting you to snort coke and have orgies. And by the way, look, again, I want to reiterate my original position. I think the coke and the orgies are real as a heart attack in Washington, D.C., But I also think Madison Cawthorn wasn't invited to an orgy and he never saw anybody do coke right in front of him because he's a liar. He's a known liar. There's a lot of holes in his story about how he even got to D.C. and what happened in his past. So I think it's real, but I don't think he's seen it. I don't think he's been invited. Um, 
when he says, I've considered for several days how best to address this controversy, to me, that's almost an acknowledgement that he's like a weasley little liar trying to, to find an angle. What do you mean you've thought about it for days? If you just tell people the truth, then you're good. But he ain't dealing in the truth. So he's like, I got to find an angle. I got to find a way to spin this. And then he goes on. The culture in Washington is corrupt. Yeah, but that's financial. When, when people think corruption, they think of financial corruption. Human nature is fallen. I, okay. Look, if they, if they really are doing coke and having orgies in D.C., that's the least objectionable thing about Washington, D.C. Now, look, it'll get weird if you're talking about, well, they're doing it with underage people. Well, that's terrible and that's criminal and people should be arrested immediately. But if it's all consenting adults, it's like, whatever. Like, who cares? So it's funny that he's taking something that's, on paper, it's consenting adults doing coke and having sex, and he's like, this is human nature has fallen. That's only bad insofar as they judge other people's sex lives and they lock people up for using drugs. The hypocrisy angle is bad. But he, doesn't, he sees it in like a moral, absolutist, religious sense of like, these are, this is sinning, and I'm against sinning. Um, compromising activities occur because when other people can place you in compromising positions, they control you. It's all about power, but my colleagues and I are fighting that corruption. So this is him trying to say, he's, it, without saying it, he's trying to say, it's the Democrats who are doing the coke and having the orgies. Because, again, he's trying to protect the image of the Republican Party. So, look, he got caught speeding here. This is what happened with Madison Cawthorn. He got caught making a claim where he did make it up. And so now he's trying to backpedal without backpedaling. And he's trying to say, no, um, I'm fighting corruption. Me and my colleagues are against the swamp. And this stuff is happening. But, you know, it's not my people who are doing it. Okay, but that's. Were you lying then or are you lying now? Because you said then it was people who you looked up to who ended up doing this and asking you about it. I will say, I mean, I guess final point is maybe um, it actually was Matt Gates and he's telling the truth. Maybe he saw Matt Gates do coke and Matt Gates invited him to an orgy because there's been a lot of reporting about maybe Matt Gates has been up to some sketchy stuff to say the least when it comes to sexual activities. I believe we covered some of that on this show. So, I don't know. The, the overriding fact that I get out of this is he's a liar. And at the end of the day, he's not somebody who's speaking truth to power because he's trying to protect the image of the Republican Party. Everything is deflect, 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 obfuscate, obfuscate, obfuscate. Um, I'm not backing down from anything, but it wasn't anybody who I know and like who did it. Uh, he's, he's a little weasel. He's a little weasel. And, um, I hope he was crying when he got out of that meeting with McCarthy, because that would be hilarious. Alex Jones and Roger Stone weighed in on Madison Cawthorn saying that uh, people are having coke, or doing coke and having orgies in Washington, D.C. And uh, Alex made a, a pretty bold claim. Take a look. He had a super hot wife, too. I mean, what do you think people are going to do? I mean... This is ridiculous. I've been invited to these things. I haven't gone to them because I don't want to be, you know, whatever blackmailer. I'm not into that. I'm, you know, happy. But, I mean, I've been invited not just to those. I've been invited to the really weird stuff, not with kids or anything, but with the whole occultic stuff. So I can tell you, folks, the eyes wide shut things go on as well. Alex Jones is saying he's been invited in Washington, D.C. to drug and orgy parties. I've never heard a lie more brazen. 
Alex, I don't know if you know this, you're Alex Jones. Nobody's inviting you to occult drug and sex parties. If there was any one person in the world that would never be invited to such a party, it would be Alex Jones. Why? The dude's been lobbing bombs, metaphorically speaking, at D.C. since he started doing his thing in like the 1990s. He was, he was one of the original, George W. Bush uh, did 9-11. He, he's like a 9-11 truther guy. He was the original 9-11 truther guy. There was a time when it appeared like his show, it, it was definitely always a conspiracy theory show, but it leaned more left. And then, of course, Trump came along and he cucked himself and he went super far right. Really, the, the, the driving force between uh, uh, that animates Alex Jones is like, everything's a conspiracy and I'm the only guy here that's telling you the truth. Um, and so, it, what, you think the people in D.C. didn't know that about you? There was no time when Alex Jones was like buddy-buddy with Chuck Grassley or some shit. You know, or hanging out with other D.C. politicians where they're comfortable enough with him to be like, let's do some coke and, and go have an orgy. By the way, the idea of Alex Jones being engaged in an orgy... It's terrifying. I do not want to think about that. I do not want to think about that at all. Oh, yeah, that feels good. Oh, that's the spot. That's the spot right there where the Illuminati and the Bilderbergs meet, and they hurt everybody. But, oh, yeah, I'm not thinking about that at the moment. I love uh, how I just simulated Alex Jones getting oral. Anyway, um, I like the degree to which this guy can lie, he's pathological. He's pathological. Not to turn this too serious here, but remember um, how he very famously said after he got caught speeding, doing the Sandy Hook is a hoax thing, he said in no uncertain terms, like, I never said it was a hoax. I never said it was a conspiracy. And then there was a compilation video of all the times he said exactly that on his show, and it was an endless compilation video. I mean, there were like 15 to 20 different occasions on his show where he said exactly that. This is crisis actors, this is a hoax, this is a conspiracy, it's to take all the guns, etc., etc., etc. So the ease with which he lies is astonishing. It's astounding. And I don't know how some people can't see it. Now look, I've always been, and many of you guys disagree with me on this, but I've always been uh, you know, of the position that he shouldn't have been banned from social media. I understand the claim, hey, those specific videos where perhaps there were, you know, doxing or semi-doxings or um, saying things that led to incitement, among others. If you want to say, hey, those particular videos need to be pulled, I'm open to that conversation, man. I am. Because I'm a free speech absolutist, but that doesn't mean you can do doxing or direct threats of violence or libel or slander. And if it's illegal, it also shouldn't be allowed on social media. So I'm with you on that conversation. But pull, given, like, the Internet death penalty on all the big social media outlets, as a result of that, I think goes too far. Um, but understand that the guy is a total charlatan and con man and fraud, as is Roger Stone. And so for them to casually be talking about this, for, for them to act like, oh, yeah, I was in, I was, you know, in those clubs and, and part of that group. And uh, I, I, by the way, where the fuck did the word occult come from there? Been invited to really crazy stuff, some occult stuff. Let me look up the word occult because I forgot the exact definition. Supernatural, mystical, or magical beliefs, practices, or phenomena. So he's been invited to occult orgies? What's a fucking occult orgy? How do you add supernatural stuff and mystical stuff and magical beliefs into an orgy? Like, what do you guys do? What do you set up some, like, voodoo dolls, and as you're 
get nasty with each other? You bring the voodoo dolls into it, or does everybody dress up weird, or are, are you casting spells as you, you give handies to everybody? Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> An occult sex and, and, and drug get-together. He's, I mean, look, he's big on the whole, you guys know this, he was talking on Rogan's show, talking about intergalactic aliens are real, and we're, you know, you're going to play when you take DMT, you're going to places and you're negotiating, and you're making intergalactic contracts with these other alien beings, and these guys are drinking the blood of babies, and they're vampires, and, I mean, honestly, he's almost never met a conspiracy he doesn't love. The one that he, ha- he has actually sort of shied away from is uh, QAnon, and I think that's because he thought QAnon was sort of stealing his thunder and his lane. And so he wanted to nip it in the bud and be like, they're the frauds, but I'm the, I'm the real deal. Okay, Alex. Again, if there was ever one person who was, wouldn't be invited to a D.C. orgy and uh, drug party, it would be Alex Jones. Because everybody knows Homeboy would be on his show the very next day talking about, you know, Nancy Pelosi likes this put in her orifices and Mitch McConnell uh, likes this sex act. So, oh. <laughs> Oh, man, why are we talking about this? I hate it. I hate it so much. Okay. All right, next. So Caitlyn Jenner um, has now debuted as a Fox News contributor. She took a job as a Fox News contributor. Now, a decent point some people are making is this was probably what the whole run for governor was about in the first place, that she knew she wasn't going to win, but she wanted to sort of springboard herself into the political world where she can get a job at some big corporate media outlet. And if that was indeed the goal, well, mission accomplished, because that's what happened. So she's now a Fox News contributor. You're going to look at her debut segment here on Hannity's show. This is the first appearance that she's making. And, uh, by the way, I think it's noteworthy that in her first appearance, she goes to, like, the most right-wing of the hosts and um, the biggest Republican cheerleader of the hosts. And take note of the points that she makes, because I think this is really interesting. I'm going to tell you afterwards what the goal here is and why Caitlyn Jenner is saying these things. Take a look. Brand new Fox News contributor, Caitlyn Jenner. We welcome you to the Fox family. Um, one thing you said to me uh, when, when I heard, and, and we've known each other for many, many years. We go back decades. You said, yeah. I, you know, I did all this stuff on reality TV, and I enjoyed it. I had fun doing it, and, and all your obvious uh, accomplishments in athletics. You said, I'm, I'm over that part of my life. This country's in deep trouble. That's where your head is at. That's where your focus is. Explain. It certainly is. Uh, that's one of the reasons I ran for governor is uh, we have to stand up. We have to have a, America has to have a stand-up mentality. Um, yes, I have done a lot in my life. Um, going all the way back uh, to the Olympics, um, I had a lot of talks actually even with you, Sean, and other people at Fox when we were negotiating this deal. Uh, as you know, as you might know, I am trans, and, but I'm not a trans activist. Um, that's just one part of my life. Uh, there's so much more to me. Um, but I think in the next, in the midterms coming up, um, LGBT issues are going to be very big issues, and I'm looking forward to covering those. But there's so much more to me than that. Uh, obviously, 1976, I think, was the best Olympics of all time. It was our, our bicentennial. Our country was 200 years old. Patriotism was at its height. 
I have been a patriot my whole life. And my father fought in World War II. My mother's 95. Uh, hi, Mom. Uh, and uh, she's a patriot. I grew up that way. And I, wanted, I want that to continue. I want well, to so proud to be the first person to put the American flag up. And I want to I continue that. So they go on to talk about the what's dubbed the "Don't Say Gay" bill in Florida that just passed. Um, so what's what's she angling for here? Like, what's the argument? What what is she saying? Well, the gist of it is, she says, "I'm trans, but I'm not a trans activist." So the point that she's trying to make to the Fox News audience is, "Hey guys, hey guys, relax, relax, relax. Be cool, be cool. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm on your side." So it's really an attempt to get out in front of the criticisms that everybody knows are going to be levied at Fox News and at Sean Hannity and anybody who has Caitlyn Jenner on their show. Um, they don't, look, they don't like her, man. They don't like her. I mean, obviously, people on the left don't like Caitlyn Jenner because of her politics. Uh, but people on the right, many of them don't like Caitlyn Jenner because she's trans. And in fact, she was uh, at one uh, event when she was running for governor, she was sort of harassed by some right-wing uh, conservative Christian, where I think they repeatedly referred to her as a man. And so I, this is what it is is a desperate effort to get ahead of the backlash, to say, everybody be cool, don't worry, I'm going to preach to the choir. I'm going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. Yes, I'm trans, but I'm not a trans activist. What does that mean? Well, you know, my interpretation of it, and look, I hope I'm wrong. I guess time will tell. But my interpretation of it is whenever there are political issues involving trans people that come up, um, she's pretty reliably going to take the right-wing position. And so, for example, in over 20 states, it is perfectly legal for a business owner to fire a worker because the worker is trans and say, look, I'm just uncomfortable with it. I think the customers are going to be uncomfortable with it, so I'm going to let you go, and I'm going to let you go because of that. And, you know, if, if we... It would be wonderful to expand non-discrimination protections to include trans people and so that they would be part of what's called a protected category along with, uh, you know, women and, and um, minorities. And it's possible she's like, no, I don't agree with that. I'm against that. It's possible when we talk about, I don't know, maybe insurance covering transition surgery that she feels like, look, I got all the money in the world. I'm set. I already did a lot of transitioning myself. And so... I'm against it, forcing like insurance companies to cover transition surgery as if it's a medical condition because it's more of a quote-unquote choice. We'll see, man. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she'll come out there in the one set of issues where she is um, more on the left is trans stuff. But it sounds to me like when she says, I'm, not tr- I'm trans, but I'm not a trans activist, it sounds to me like she's saying, I will be the trans person to come here and vindicate all of the beliefs you already have, Fox News viewer, on trans issues. And this is, look, it is the oldest Fox News trick in the book. You bring on a a black commentator who's not too fond of black people, bring on a gay commentator who's not too fond of gay people, um, and apparently now bring on a trans person who's not too fond of trans people. By the way, I'm sure there's like, there's probably a million um, trans political commentators who are way more thoughtful than Caitlyn Jenner. But Caitlyn Jenner is the one who was hired. And so 
what does that say? It says that Fox News loves the idea of doing tokenism where you take a member of a minority group and that member of that minority group is, says, whoa, 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 we're going too far here with what, what the, this minority group is calling for. So I think that's what we're going to see. Time will tell. But also, of course, she's going to comment on other political issues. And we know she's pretty much a dyed-in-the-wool right-winger when it comes to other issues. Remember when she, I think she gave an interview after she had already come out as trans where she said, look, I'm, I'm a traditionalist and I wasn't in favor of gay marriage. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Um, she says that she's a patriot. My dad was a patriot, blah, blah, blah. My dad fought in World War II. That's against trying to be like, I'm just as American as you, even though I'm trans. You don't like trans people. Honestly, this reminds me a little bit of what happened with Dave Rubin, where he was announcing that he's having kids and uh, through a surrogate, and a very large percentage of his own audience turned on him in the most vicious ways imaginable. Um, this sort of reminds me of that. And the final point I'll make is when she mentions there, oh, when we were negotiating this deal, talk about her deal with Fox that she negotiated, uh, I'm sure I would shudder at whatever the number is that Fox News agreed to pay Caitlyn Jenner. I'm sure that it's, I'm sure it's uh, in the millions and um, she'll get paid millions of dollars to come on Fox, you know, four or five times a week and uh, give banal standard right-wing arguments. But since it's coming from a trans woman who, um, had already built a name for herself previously between, of course, being in the Olympics and, and being famous, being of Kardashian fame. Um, it's yet another example that this idea that we live in a meritocracy is the most preposterous thing anybody's ever heard. I mean, this, we are so far from a meritocracy, it's laughable. We are much closer to an anti-meritocracy than to an actual meritocracy. And this is great evidence of it. Okay, next. So Kamala Harris um, gave a two-minute non-answer when asked a question directly about Vladimir Putin and um, him staying in power. Let's take a look and then I'll react. And when the president was there, um, he gave a speech in Warsaw. It was was well-received by many, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he also said something that I think was received... Well, by some, but kind of surprised others. He said that Vladimir Putin um, should no longer be the leader of Russia. Do you agree? Listen, I think that you you framed the point quite accurately and well, which is America's policy has been and will continue to be focused on the real issue at hand, which is, one, the needs of the Ukrainian people, which we will continue to support, through humanitarian assistance, through security assistance, but also ensuring that there's going to be serious consequence for Vladimir Putin and Russian aggression as it relates to Ukraine, which is why our policy from the beginning has been about ensuring that there are going to be real costs exacted against Russia in the form of severe sanctions, which we know are having a real impact and an immediate impact not to mention the, the longer-term impact, um, which is about saying there's going to be consequence and accountability when you commit the kinds of um, atrocities that he is committing. And I think the president has been a, an extraordinary leader. To your point, Joy, I've been to Poland. I was in Romania. I've been to Europe, I think, probably at least three times in the last four months. Uh, I was in Munich, Germany, where I 
gave a, a speech at the Munich Security Conference. I was in France before that, speaking with heads of state about this issue, among many other issues, but most recently about this issue. And I will tell you, in sitting down with prime ministers and presidents, often the first thing they would say to me is thank you to the United States and this administration for bringing us together, for building the coalition, for reinvigorating the relationship between the United States and its NATO allies, reinvigorating the relationship and the importance of the relationship to the EU in terms of an issue like Ukraine, which is ultimately about one of the most important principles that we, we, we are fighting for, which is the importance of sovereignty and territorial integrity. Wow. So the question was, in case you forgot it after that long, rambling, babbling answer, should Putin no longer be the leader of Russia? Her first response is, you know, you framed that point quite well. What point? She's asking a question. Should Putin no longer be the leader of Russia? You know, you framed that point quite well. Then she goes on to talk about, I've been to Poland and Romania and Munich and France. And other world leaders always say to us, thank you, U.S. and this administration, for bringing us together. So you're not going to give an answer. That's what you're going to do. You're not going to give an answer to the most direct question of all time. Should Putin no longer be the leader of Russia? You couldn't give a direct answer to that. Look, she is. What's astonishing about Kamala is that she seems incapable of giving a direct answer on any question. She doesn't have the ability to go like yes or no. And then explain it. Look, this leads to the issue of you come across as inauthentic. You come across as not trustworthy. Because a a more artful politician, even if they're dodging the question, they would dodge it in a smoother way. Where you're not even sure if they did dodge it. Where you walk away going, was that an answer? With her, you're going, oh, that definitely was not an answer. There was not even close to an answer in there. So how should she have answered the question? Very simple. Uh, should Putin no longer be the leader of Russia? The response to that is, President Biden was correct in saying our goal is not regime change. And then you go on to explain that further. And by the way, the reason why you say that is because you don't want to heighten tensions with a nuclear armed power when we're in the situation that we're currently in, where there's a hot war in Ukraine, where Russia invaded Ukraine, and we have NATO troops just outside of Ukraine. And every sanction of the sun has been unleashed on Russia, not just hurting the government, but also hurting the people of Russia. You want to make sure you don't say anything or do anything that raises the stakes even further when we're already on, like, nuclear alert that's higher than what the normal is. You know, probably the U.S. is too, not just Russia. You have to give that answer. You have no choice but to give that answer. But you can't do it. And that's why Biden shoved his foot in his mouth when he said, man, this guy can no longer be the leader of Russia. And when he came out and clarified, he said, look, we're not changing our policy. Our policy is not regime change, but I was just expressing my emotional outrage. God, you're playing with fire, man. It's really, really bad. It's really dangerous to act as you're acting. And uh, even after Biden clarified, she couldn't come out there and and say, no, our goal is not regime change. You have to say that. You have to say that. Even if at your highest aspiration, you're sanctioning Putin and the oligarchs with the hope that the oligarchs and or the military might squeeze him out. You still should be like, our goal is not regime change. 
Because then also you give him a massive propaganda win, and he gets to turn around to his own population and say, see, big bad evil America, this is always what it was about. This is always what it was about. They hate you, they hate me, they hate Russia, and um, they're the aggressor. See, they're talking about overthrowing me. Look at what they're doing. So it's just, it's such a bad answer. It's so bad. By the way, there is no captain of the ship. Nobody is steering the ship. I mean, Biden has repeatedly stated no U.S. boots on the ground. That's good. But I certainly think that with all the sanctions that have been unleashed, that it's gone too far because now it's hurting Russian civilians. So I think he's gone too far even on the sanctions front. And it's just a, it's just a scary situation when you feel like everybody's just sort of reacting in a very reflexive way. And that's how you sleepwalk into World War III. That it is. And uh, you, don't hear, you don't hear direct answers. You don't hear clear answers. You don't hear leadership. You hear both Biden and Kamala Harris tripping over themselves and being like spineless, mushy politicians at the last moment that you would want them to be spinely, spi- spinely? <laughs> spineless, mushy politicians. So guys, for the love of God, just say no. The goal is not regime change. Just say no. It's, it should have been the most obvious political layup ever, but instead you get babbling about, here are all the things we should have done, and you frame the point qu- quite well, and I've been to Poland and Romania and Munich and France. Remind me of when Sarah Palin was like, I could see Russia from Alaska. Like, what? Thank you for bringing, bringing us together. Thank you for bringing together the EU and NATO and all that stuff. You can give the response about, here's all the actions we have taken, but you have to lead with, our policy, our goal is not regime change. She couldn't do it. She couldn't do it. I'm perpetually amazed at how bad she is at this. I mean, she's not even in the spotlight that often, and her approval rating is still hovering around like 28%, which means every time she opens her mouth, people are rolling their eyes. And I'm sure that there's jockeying for position behind the scenes where, you know, her and Mayor Pete and many others are angling to be the next president. But if this is all you got for public appearances, well, it's no wonder you're doing as bad as you are. Remember when she called herself a top-tier candidate? Remember that? She went from, like, one of the leaders of the Democratic primary to the second she started talking, immediately tanking. It's very similar to Hillary in that respect. But at least Hillary got to the primary. (laughs) Kamala Harris didn't even make it to Iowa. Didn't even make it to the first contest. And you can see why with answers like this. Okay. Next. So CNBC um, is really outraged over Biden's proposed billionaire tax. Now, mind you, the thing's already dead. Manchin already was like, I'm not going to do it. So yet again, we're given something that in theory is pretty good and then gets crushed and killed in the cradle instantly. But uh, that doesn't stop CNBC from doing their propaganda and, and saying, pity the poor mega rich. Uh, so here they are running cover for billionaires, but specifically a guy by the name of Leon Cooperman, who very famously cried over high taxes. So let's take a look at what they're saying now. Billionaire Leon Cooperman calling President Biden's proposed tax on billionaires is the word stupid and probably illegal. Now Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, responding in a tweet yesterday, writing in her words, Leon, before the tears start streaming down your face again, uh, let's remember, billionaires often pay less taxes than teachers, nurses, and firefighters. Uh, a billionaire's income tax would start to level the playing field so everyone gets a fighting chance. So with us now to discuss the billionaire tax and how Americans 
I feel about the proposal is pollster and political strategist Frank Lund. Um, Lee, Lee Cooperman has signed the giving pledge, so he's giving everything away. Do you think that when a, a bureaucrat, um, and I think about some of her comments about, about Elon Musk, who paid $11 billion in taxes last year, I don't know how many, I don't know how long you'd have to tally up every um, politician's yearly tax bill before they get to $11 billion. But does this play in Peoria? People that resentful of, of billionaires so that something like that still plays, Frank? What did your poll say? It's not a matter of... It's an issue of the Democrats and the what people prioritize. And they prioritize cutting waste for Washington spending. They prioritize lowering inflation. They prioritize ending American dependence. And I'm not ducking the question. I'm reframing it because the public is very clear about this. The tax policy is less important to people today than it has been at any time since I've been doing polling. And in fact, they see and they seek different answers than simply raising taxes. Now, make no mistake. Billionaires are not as respected now as they were 10 years ago. They're not as appreciated now, or I should say the wealthy. I don't want to use your language. I want to use the language of the American public. But that being said, they, if, they, if taxes have to go up, it should go up on business. But that is not the issue to the public. How do you lower my day-to-day -day cost? And raising taxes, even if it's just on the wealthy, the average American thinks eventually it will filter down to them. That's what we call obfuscating. That's what we call running cover for billionaires and running cover for Leon Cooperman. What they're doing there, make no mistake about it, is rank propaganda. How do I know that? Well, I happen to know the polling. I happen to know the polling on this exact issue, raising taxes on the wealthy. So there's a Pew Research poll. This one goes back to 2017, but polls since then have also verified this exact same theme. Don't take my word for it. You can go look for yourself. I'm going to give you this and give you a newer poll on it. Uh, do you agree with this sentiment? Some corporations don't pay their fair share. 62% say I agree with that a lot. A lot. Some wealthy people don't pay their fair share. 60% agree with that a lot. Another 18% say they kind of agree with that. Um, then when they ask the question, do poor people, do some poor people not pay their fair share? Only 20% agree with that a lot. Only 20% say poor people don't pay their fair share. Um, by the way, the Republican plan, as put forward by Rick Scott, is raise taxes on the bottom 50% of wage earners in the country. That's their plan. That's their plan. Uh, there was a Build Back Better poll. There were a bunch of higher taxes on the wealthy. They were in the original Build Back Better proposal. Uh, this was polled by Data for Progress. Let me give you the answers here. Uh, what percentage supports increasing capital gains taxes on the wealthy? That's the, what you tax for money that they make through investments in the stock market. 72% say raise capital gains taxes on the wealthy. How about limiting deductions for wealthy business owners? 71% support that. Raising the income tax on the wealthy is 2%. 71% support that. Uh, and then increasing taxes on large corporations, 65% support that. Even to this direct question of a wealth tax, of a billionaire's tax, uh, the polls that I've seen on that indicate the support is even higher than what I'm telling you here. It's even higher than, than these specific taxes on the wealthy. So this is, a, this is an issue that is overwhelming. 
And it's not just Democrats. It's not just independents. Even a majority of many Republicans support raising some of these taxes. So what they're doing is obfuscating. They're lying. They're doing propaganda to protect billionaires. Now, just to remind you who they're protecting here, because this is the guy that called a billionaire tax stupid. They're um, protecting Leon Cooperman, who had this very famous moment in a feud with Elizabeth Warren when she wanted to do a wealth tax on billionaires. Here was his reaction. And we need a unifier in that position and because the country is being torn apart. So let him make his own decision. Uh, I am not in favor of all this impeachment inquiry. Uh, I want the American people to decide in November of 2020 what the future should be. I think, um, I, mean, I think it's kind of obvious people can not only see the emotion on your face, but hear it in your voice when you talk about this, Lee. Why? I care. That's it. I'm a billionaire. What if I become poor because of a 2% wealth tax? <laughs> now, look, to be fair, I did. I went back and watched the entire clip because it struck me like they were talking about Trump there when he mentioned impeachment and he mentioned, and I think he should step down because we need a unifier in the country. So it's not exactly clear he was crying about the idea of raising taxes on the rich. But and you can see in the, the, the Chiron there, uh, they, one of his points that he always goes back to, because him and Elizabeth Warren were feuding and he wrote a letter and she responded and all this stuff, uh, he thinks the vilification of wealthy people is tearing the country apart. And he's made that point time and time and time again. Um, so, I don't know, you go back and watch the full clip yourself. It strikes me like maybe he's crying about an amalgamation of issues, but he did bring up impeachment and stuff and, and Trump stepping down before the tears came, but um, I don't know. I'll leave it up to you to determine if he's actually crying over higher taxes or if he's crying over, quote-unquote, the country being torn apart. But again, the thing that he always goes back to about, hey, the country's being torn apart, is because he thinks rich people are being vilified. So I don't know. I'll leave it up to you. Either way, this is goofy as hell. (laughs) And um, this is a guy who's on the record calling a wealth tax stupid, calling a billionaire tax stupid. To be fair to him, he does support other kinds of uh, higher taxes. Like I think he's fine with the top marginal income tax increase. He says he supports a progressive tax system. Uh, But nonetheless, look, they were doing propaganda for billionaires on CNBC in that first clip. Uh, They're just obfuscating and deflecting and not being honest about what the polls show when it comes to raising tax on the wealthy. Yes, it very well might be true that on the list of things Americans prioritize, like, hey, what should be done first? What should be done second? I'm sure that taxing the wealthy comes in, uh, you know, down the line a little bit. Maybe it's the 10th thing or the 14th thing or whatever that people want to get to. But a lot of the things at the top of that list, like getting people health care, can be funded with the raising taxes on the wealthy. And again, the numbers are very clear on that, that it is a super popular issue. It's a bipartisan issue among the public. And of course, you have Republican politicians and many Democratic politicians blocking any movement in the right direction on that. And again, the media running cover for the wealthy, which is the entire point of CNBC. That's what they do. Now, by the way, I want to reiterate yet again, um, 
I don't know why, but recently CNBC has been copywriting all of their clips. So, and, and what that means is some people, when they copyright, they'll just pull down the entire video and not allow anybody to see it. But oftentimes when outlets copyright, they'll let you keep the video up, but they just steal your revenue from that video. Uh, and this has been happening more and more often. I don't know if CNBC does this with all of their clips now or if it was just a fluke the last time it happened when I covered a Biden speech and they jacked the revenue. But if you support the show, please donate a couple bucks per month on Patreon. The link is in the video description box. Because again, I don't trust YouTube. And they pulled the rug out from underneath us previously with Adpocalypse. You all remember that. And uh, now we're seeing an uptick in uh, copyright pirates. And so the best way to support this show is to just donate on Patreon a couple bucks a month. By the way, thank you to everybody who already does that. You mean the world, and, you know, the show couldn't function without you guys. And so thank you to, to everybody who already does it. And if you haven't done it, please consider it. I'd really appreciate it. But there you go. CNBC doing rank propaganda on behalf of billionaires. Okay. So Joe Biden uh, and the Democrats got a little bit of a wake-up call in the form of a new poll that I'm going to show you now. So let's go ahead and take a look. This is in Business Insider. They say student loan forgiveness could lure nearly half of Americans in key battleground states to vote in November, survey says. A new poll suggests student loan relief might help voter turnout in November's midterm elections. Data for Progress in collaboration with RISE, a higher education advocacy group, conducted a survey obtained exclusively by insider of 2,066 likely voters in the battleground states, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, all of which flipped from former President Donald Trump to President Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election. Respondents were polled on how likely they would be to vote in the November general election should Biden implement a range of policy measures related to student debt and have found that 45% of them would be somewhat or much more likely to vote if Biden cancels $10,000 in student debt for every federal borrower, which he pledged to do on the campaign trail. Additionally, 46% of respondents also said they would be likelier to go to the polls if Biden were to cancel $50,000 in student debt for every federal borrower, an amount many progressive lawmakers have been pushing for. Over one-third of respondents said another motivating factor to vote would come from a further extension of the pause on student loan payments through the end of the year. Okay. So if they're going to do anything, and that's a big if, uh, they would probably just do that, extend the pause. Um, I think it's either that or maybe $10,000 of elimination or nothing. That's way more likely than the 50000 and that's way more likely than just totally abolishing it, which is what should be done. That, that debt slate should be totally wiped clean. Um, and there's, by the way, there's a number of times on the campaign trail and elsewhere where Joe Biden has gone as far as to say, I'm going to get rid of your student debt. Sometimes when he gives more specific, that number comes down, either ten or 50000 But he's done Dickie McGee's acts. He's only done it for, like, you know, I forget the specifics, but maybe one time it was, like, uh, veterans who have over a certain amount of money in debt or disabled people or people who were scammed by for-profit universities. But it's a very – it's a tiny percentage of the people who actually have student loan debt who've gotten any action on it whatsoever. But this poll makes very clear. Democrats are much more likely to have a prayer – in the midterms, if Biden delivers on this. Now, why is this so important? It's important because it verifies everything we've been saying on this show all along, which is politics is not rocket science. If you want to win, you have to do things that materially improve the lives of the voters and the constituents and the American people. Duh, duh. But I'm not kidding when I say in D.C. They, they don't believe that. They don't believe that at all. 
their conventional wisdom is the polar opposite. They say, if anything, Biden's been too aggressive and he's gone too far with a lot of these programs. And what people want is deficit reduction and smaller government. And they want you to be more centrist and more moderate. And you're shooting yourself in the foot by being too bold. This is genuinely what they believe. All of the evidence flies in the face of that. When was Joe Biden his most popular? You guys remember? When he cut $1,400 checks to the American people. His approval rating was 54% when he did that. Then the longer he's gone without doing things that materially improve lives, the more that approval rating just plummets. Plummets. One poll, I mean, like 38%. You know, I don't know what the average is, probably around 42 or thereabouts. But there's going to be a bloodbath in the midterms. It is going to be devastating. It's going to be just like the Tea Party wave of 2010, if not worse, if he doesn't deliver. And he's not showing signs that he's going to deliver. Again, if they are to do anything, it would either be pause, uh, continue the extension, continue the pause on student loan payments, or maybe $10,000. I highly doubt they'd get rid of 50000 I highly doubt they'd abolish it completely. But it is a layup. It is a no-brainer. Now, why wouldn't he do it? It's either ideological. He thinks, I'm just not in favor of doing that because people need to, you know, what do you say? I have no empathy for this generation. It could be an ideological reason why he doesn't want to do it, or... Perhaps it has something to do with his donors, and he's serving his donors over the needs of the people, and maybe there are some donors who are diametrically opposed to the American people, and they say, don't you dare abolish that student loan debt. I don't know why he doesn't do it, but he should do it. It's obvious. And now you have a poll that clearly shows you're going to do better in the next election if you do it. If this is about self-preservation at all, and by the way, make no mistake, if he does do any action on student loan debt from here on out, it's going to be simply for for self-preservation for him and the Democrats. But it, it's the easiest thing in the world. It's such a layup. He could do it through executive order, guys. Uh, the 1965 Higher Education Act gives the Secretary of Education the ability, if they want, to wipe that debt slate clean. He could do it with a stroke of a pen. He could do it with an executive order, and he's not doing it. He could legalize marijuana with a stroke of a pen. He's not doing it. There are a number of things he could do right now, right now, that would improve his approval rating colossally, and he's just not doing it. He's just not doing it. How much more evidence do you need? By the way, this isn't the only poll that I've seen with these results. I've seen other, or at least uh, anecdotal stories and articles talking about how some very high percentage of black voters is like, I'm not going to vote if they don't abolish my student loan debt or if they don't take action on student loan debt. So there's a consistent theme. And again, hear me out, quote me later, you go look at mainstream media and see how many of them are talking about this. My guess is even on MSNBC, they're not talking about this. So you get like, the conventional wisdom is the opposite position, and people are brainwashed into thinking it's obvious. And then meanwhile, here we are actually following the data and talking about it, and credit to print media for running the articles, and it's, it's, it's all going to fall on deaf ears. I don't even know if anybody's advising Joe Biden to do the right thing on this, but it'd be insane if nobody was. It's time for the Hail Mary passes, man. If you don't want to get obliterated, you've got to do these things. You have no choice. And forget about just from the, from the political perspective of, like, the horse race and who's going to win. Do it because it's the right thing to do. Well, I mean, high school is free. Why shouldn't college be free, too? Why shouldn't it be free? And anybody who fear mongers over the idea, like, it's a crazy idea, okay, well, then why don't you want um, high school to make people deeply in debt? If you're going to be consistent about, you know, oh, why are you giving people free stuff? Then why aren't you also against our public high school system? Don't answer that because maybe some people actually are against our public high school system. But to me, this is just the basics. If somebody's trying to make a better life and get decent wages and get ahead, you've got to go to college. And a lot of people, you know, they just 
can't afford it, and they go deeply in debt, and it's a terrible system. By the time you get out into the real world, you're already way behind because you owe so much money. It is not a just system. It's not a fair system. It's a terrible system. God, and it would help so many people. Anyway, look, there, there you have it. I mean, this is – what we're seeing here is a very clear answer as to what would help the Democrats and what would help the American people. And my guess is it will be ignored. For the love of God, I'm begging the Biden administration, do something. Eliminate it. Just eliminate that student debt. That alone is such a powerful argument. It would be so easy for people to say, oh, of course, I'm voting for the lesser evil because that lesser evil is super less of an evil if Biden eliminates student loan debt. Because that's something that every progressive can hang their hat on and say, at least he did that. At least he did that. You got to add to that list, man. Right now, that list is not too many things long. It's just not. Pulling out of Afghanistan is on that list, but then he sanctioned Afghanistan and now babies are starving to death. So any, anything he gets credit for, now he, he took away with a sanctions regime that's even tougher than the war itself. Raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour for every federal contractor or federal employee, that's something that's on that list. Right to repair is on that list, but you've got to build on that list, dog. You have to do it. You can't make people feel like the lesser evil is only 2% less evil because then nobody's going to want to vote, and that's exactly what we're seeing. So actually do something good for once. All right, final story of the day, y'all. Final story of the day. Let's talk a little bit about how to de-radicalize people from the far right or how to de-radicalize people from the alt-right. This is something that, you know, I've cared deeply about over the years. It's honestly the thing that I would say I'm most proud of about this show. You know, I I mean, I've done uh, a number of things, um, but I think this is by far and away the, the best thing I do. And nothing feels more rewarding than when I'm at, like, when I was at Politicon a number of times and, uh, there's a meet and greet, and then somebody comes up to me and says, hey, man, I was going down a real bad path, and you you course corrected me. You took me off that bad path, and, you know, I couldn't be more thankful over that. That really, you know, touches me. It really makes me feel great. I, I don't know if there's anything that comes remotely close to that feeling that you get when you're told that. So it means the world to hear it. What I want to do is lay out for you guys some of my thoughts on this um, and – some of the strategies that I put into place. By the way, this, I'm not doing the strategies consciously. I don't have like a step-by-step guide that I go like, did I do the first thing? Did I do the second, guy? The second thing? No, I just naturally end up doing this because it's just part of the way that I communicate when I'm covering the news and the stories that I do. Um, so the first point I want to make, how to de-radicalize somebody from the alt-right. It's a process. It's a process. I think sometimes people are expecting like a quick, you know, like immediate flip on everything where they just snap out of it and they're like, I'm no longer an extremist. That very rarely, if ever, happens. De-radicalization is a process that takes time and oftentimes the people are going to slowly but surely move in the right direction when they're by themselves in their own room kind of pondering things and noticing contradictions, and they get to a point where they can't sort of double down on their wrong ideology. So it's a process. Accept 
that it takes a while. It's okay that it takes a while. It's okay that it takes a while. Think about it, 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 to make a corny analogy here, think about like gardening. You can plant a seed, but the seed is going to have to grow. You don't put the seed in the ground and then, you know, you go inside for some lemonade and come out and boom, would you look at that? It's already fully bloomed. That's, that's not how it works. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you have to, you have to believe within reason as much as possible in engagement. You have to make an effort to connect, make an effort to communicate. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that there aren't some people who are what I call here TFGs, which stands for too far gone. There's always going to be TFGs. They've existed in every society throughout history. Some people are very rigid, and they will not break free from their ideology no matter what the counter evidence is. But I'm optimistic in the sense that I think the TFG percentage is a lot less than many others do. And some might even appear like they're TFGs. But ultimately, they end up not being TFGs. A great example is that guy by the name of Daryl Davis, who's uh, he's a black musician, and he's made a point in his life to connect with and talk to virulent racists and white supremacists and literal people who are in the KKK. And when he starts with them, they have their defenses up, and they um, despise him, and they'll you know repeat statistics about black crime right to his face and imply, if not outright, say he's a criminal. And over time, with engagement with direct responses, um, with a real connection, he wears them down. And eventually, I mean, he has, I don't even know how many dozens or hundreds of KKK robes that when people finally leave the KKK, they send him the robe and say, you know, thank you for sort of opening my eyes. So engaging is a big part of it. Um, it's, if you just silo yourself off and use shame as a tactic and moral judgment and finger wagging, that's much less likely to work. Direct engagement is, is the best possible way to get movement in the right direction. Another point is, and maybe this one will be controversial, I don't know, but it's certainly part of what I like to do, is um, be normal. Be normal. You know, you're a normal person, I'm a normal person, most people are normal people, even if, uh, you know, somebody has some extremist characteristics or policy ideas or thoughts or tendencies. Um, if you come across like a normal person, you're much more likely to get through. If somebody seems to be putting on a show or there's a veneer uh, or there's some kabuki theater that they're doing, they're playing some sort of role, people are much more likely to shut off when you do that. Now, of course, what is and isn't quote-unquote normal is like, I guess you could say up for debate, but I think you get the gist of what I'm saying. Communicate like a normal person. Um, I also like this idea of countering what is the negative stereotypes of the left. People have People who aren't on the left have this caricature of the left in their mind where it's like they're super loud, super obnoxious, very rigid in their mindset, completely intolerant even though they pretend to embrace tolerance. They're authoritarian even though they think they're not authoritarian. Um, and you shouldn't be any of those things or, or do any of those things. Uh, don't shout over people. Don't be so rigid that you're not open to having your own mind change from time to time. Um, I think if you counter that stereotype of the left, then you're going to have a more receptive audience. Now, that's not, by the way, that's not me saying, you know, give up on who you are. Um, that's not me saying tell the right what they want to hear to then deconvert them because that, 
that's counterproductive. That wouldn't change anybody's mind on the right, and then you would be acting as a pawn for them. So don't misconstrue what I'm saying here when I make that point. I'm just saying tendencies that are generally agreed upon uh, or characteristics that are generally agreed upon to be objectively annoying, that you would hate in somebody else, don't embody those characteristics and qualities yourself because you're not above something being objectively annoying. You can't say, but I'm me, so when I do it, it's okay. And you'd be surprised at the number of people who genuinely think, I'm me, and when I do it, it's okay. So counter the stereotype of the left. Be normal to the extent that normal is even a thing. Um, then we get to this idea of you can't what, essentialize, and you can't paint with a broad brush about those who disagree. In other words, tribalism and partisan hackery is very, very bad. Don't be tribal and don't be a partisan hack. And so one of the things, one of my biggest pet peeves is hearing other commentators who are on the left say things like, and the right wing always says this, and the right wing always does this, and Republicans always do this. And it, would it really be that much more difficult to throw a qualifier in there to say the far right does this, you know, the elected Republicans do this? if you put the qualifier, all of a sudden a statement might just become flat out true. When if you say uh, Republicans do this or right wingers are like that, what you're doing is taking anybody, anybody who even mildly associates with the right, you immediately turn them off and they shut down and they're, now you're the enemy. And now, you know, anything you say is going to be put through the ringer and shredded a thousand different ways to Sunday. So in other words, be precise in your language. Don't essentialize people. Don't act like they are their, you know, they are the worst things of the other stereotype. Be specific in your language. Don't paint with a broad brush. And look, this is something, this is an issue that the left seems to understand well when it comes to minority groups. And when it comes, like, for example, when somebody on the right would say, we got a Muslim problem, everybody on the left would be like, whoa, what, what the fuck is that? <laughs> like, why are you? Why would you say that? If you want to make the argument there's a problem with jihadists, right, then it's like, okay, that's, I understand why you would say that. That makes perfect sense. But if you say we have a Muslim problem, it's like, what the fuck? So by the same, use that same logic when engaging with the right. It's not like right-wingers are bad, full stop, or uh, Republicans are bad, full stop. No, it's the far right is bad, and uh, elected Republicans are a problem, because that's more accurate. I get there's a difference between a religion and an ideological uh, perspective, of course. But I'm just saying don't essentialize and paint with a broad brush when you can use precise language instead, which makes other people much more receptive to your ideas. Then we have another point, which I think is going to be a, a controversial point. But listen to my explanation because every part of this matters, okay? You have to give credit where it's due and find common ground wherever possible. Now, people who don't like me or don't like this show hear that, and then they probably think what Kyle is saying is, you know, tell the right what they want to hear, and that's the best way to deconvert the right, which really isn't deconverting the right. It's just you agreeing with the right. That's what some people who don't like me and don't like this show might think when I say that. That is not at all what I'm saying. What I'm talking about is intellectual honesty. So in other words, uh, there are plenty of people on the right who I disagree with vehemently on a million things. Let's just take Ron Paul, for example, right? So many things I think he's comically wrong on. 
you know, he's, he's completely in favor of market deregulation, which has all these problems of externalities and pollution. We can talk about it all day, right? Uh, he's also, he also wants super low taxes, including on the wealthy. And I think that's in a, an abysmal system that exacerbates income and wealth inequality and it's unsustainable. And he has this philosophical commitment to Ayn Randian type economics, um, to almost anarcho-capitalism in a way. Now, I disagree with him vociferously on so many things. And when I do, I'm going to talk about it. And I'm going to be specific about here's where I disagree and here's why I think you're wrong, et cetera. But when it comes to like a foreign policy issue or legalizing marijuana or drugs in general uh, or civil liberties, the NSA, the Patriot Act, stuff like that, Ron Paul and I are, have 97% agreement. Why would I bury that fact? Why would I hide that fact? Why would I not talk about that fact? Why would I not give credit where credit is due when I actually just flat out agree with them? When you do that, people see intellectual, intellectual honesty and consistency where now somebody who is a libertarian and might be a committed libertarian, here's the areas where I give Ron Paul credit, and they're like, you know that Kyle, maybe he's not all bad. He gave credit to Ron Paul for this, and I agree with Ron Paul on that, and I sort of like the arguments Kyle made to bolster Ron Paul's point on that front. See, now you've gotten yourself in a position where the resistance is crumbling. And so now when I make a point about the minimum wage, for example, where Ron Paul is dead wrong, they're much more likely to hear the argument. Now, maybe they don't get convinced. Maybe they do. Maybe it begins the process where eventually they get convinced. But it all started from this place of, hey, you know what, man? Good point. But I find so many people, they don't have the ability to just be like, credit where it's due, I agree. It's always like, let's go one layer deeper and talk about the motivations of why you did X, Y, and Z. And maybe they're not pure motivations. Maybe they're actually bad motivations. And maybe when you're right, you're actually wrong. Like, shut the fuck up. No, just be honest. Just be honest. It's not that di- I swear to you guys, it's not that difficult. It really isn't. So that's another super important point. If you give credit where it's due and you find common ground wherever possible and you actually talk about those things, then when you actually do disagree, and by the way, you should where you do disagree, people are much more likely to listen. And you don't have to sugarcoat where you disagree. You can say, look, you're very wrong, and here's why I think you're wrong, and then lay it out. And maybe you convince them, maybe you don't, but at least now the dialogue is happening, and it's a real dialogue. Um, another point is, for people on the left, they totally need to drop this idea of purity of character. In other words, yes, I know you might think it's a tired point, I know you might think it's annoying, but it's true. Enough with the quote-unquote cancel culture stuff. I don't care if you made a politically incorrect joke in 1997. I don't care if you tweeted things that are offensive. I I don't care if you went to prison for a terrible crime and now you're out and you've changed your life and reformed. I'm not going to hold that crime over your head. Purity of character is, is a myth because nobody has a pure character. We've all said something dumb. We've all believed stupid things at one point or another in our lives, this idea that, well, we all come out of the womb and we're Noam Chomsky, fuck out of here. Like, it's just not the case. So anything involving purity of character, just drop it. It, it's, it makes you look like a self-righteous, pompous, arrogant, stick-up-your-ass, virtue-signaling prick when you're nitpicking other people's qualities or characteristics or 
jokes or offensive beliefs they may have had previously. It's just a waste of time and it's a waste of effort. And it's a way that it's a thing that separates us out and makes people hate each other more and want to slit each other's throats more. And it is, is the antithesis of solidarity. So drop the purity of character, embrace an edgy culture and understand there is a purity test that matters. It's purity of policy. Like you have to agree on the broad strokes of what it means to be a leftist, which is like, hey, let's use the power of the government and the community to improve people's lives and make our existence on this planet better, healthier, more joyous, more fair, et cetera, et cetera. So you should care about purity of policy. You should not care about purity of character. Purity of character is dumb. It's a myth. And it's super counterproductive and anti-solidarity to harp away on that stuff. And unfortunately, I do see a trend of many people on the left so focused on purity of character, they almost don't even think about policy or talk about policy. So that's a super important point that I can't stress enough. And the final point is you need to highlight when you're trying to deconvert people and de-radicalize people, you need to highlight that politics, it's about principles. So like, what do you value? What's a principle of yours? It's about improving lives, and it's about how society should be if it's functioning in an ideal or more ideal sense. Like, that's what politics is really about. And when you make that point and when you stress those things, it, it's, you could have a light bulb moment, people can, where they realize, like, oh, maybe, like, all of this over-the-top, super niche online culture war stuff is actually a diversion. Maybe it's actually something that is the divide and conquer that the elites and the establishment and the 1% want. They want you to fight endlessly about culture war shit and beat each other's throats, as opposed to noticing the overarching themes which drive our politics. If you are committed to a politics that's about principles, improving lives, and how society should function in an ideal sense or a more ideal sense and getting closer to that, you're so much more likely to start bringing people to the way you think. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think many people look at politics in that sort of a way anymore. I don't. I think some do, uh, but you need to not only do that, but also be an evangelist for that same sort of mindset. And when you focus a politics on principles, oftentimes what you could do is, and this is one of the most interesting parts of dialogue that can deconvert people, is you use values that people claim they have to make them become more of a leftist. So, for example, a lot of right-wingers think, like, I'm, I'm a big supporter of freedom. I believe in freedom. Well, guess what? I'm a leftist, and that is probably the main ideal and value that animates my worldview. And so if we agree that freedom is a good thing, right, well, then now I need to make a case for freedom that bolsters leftist values and, and policy ideas. So, for example, you point out to somebody who might consider themselves on the right or even the alt-right or whatever they are, I believe in freedom, and it's like, okay, well, we just covered a story of voting to legalize marijuana or decriminalize marijuana happening in the House. There are only like two or three Republicans who voted to decriminalize marijuana. Almost every Democrat except two voted to legalize marijuana. So at least the Republican Party does not believe in freedom as a value. 
they're again, this is one of the most basic, obvious layup issues for those who believe in freedom. I mean, you had Republicans arguing against the idea of, um, well, since kids exist, we can't legalize marijuana because maybe they'll have it. Nobody's talking about legalizing it for kids. Adults can't have things that adults can partake in because kids exist. So should we ban porn? Should we ban alcohol? No, that's deeply authoritarian. So point out the contradictions. Point out in an economic sense, how free are you really if your basic needs aren't met? You don't have a roof over your head. You don't have food in your belly. Are you really free? You're free to be homeless. You're free to starve. You're free to die. You're not really free if the basic needs aren't met in an economic sense. So maybe bare minimum economic security actually is part and parcel of freedom and the value of freedom and the principle of freedom. So take the values that they claim to hold, a left argument that says actually leftist policy ideas uh, are more so the embodiment of the freedom that you say you believe in. So I guess you're on the left. And so, look, I'll, I'll cut the segment off now. We've been going on for a while, but you can see this is, an, uh, this is a topic that I care deeply about, and it is the thing I'm most proud of by far and away. Whenever anybody comes up to me and tells me, hey, man, I used to be a Ben Shapiro fan. I used to be a Steven Crowder fan. I used to listen to Tucker Carlson, or some people even went further down that rabbit hole, and I was all about Stefan Molyneux or whoever, and they say, you helped get me out of that. Um, the things that I'm explaining to you now, it's how you can get through to a lot of people. It's how, um, you know, you can change minds for the better. And I've never seen any sort of empirical study, objective study on just how many people I've, obviously nobody studied how many people I've deconverted, but I've never seen empirical studies on these tactics that I'm laying out for you. I don't even know how you would empirically study it, but um, I can assure you the stuff I'm talking about here works. And, um, in so far as that is your goal, this, these are some tips. Now, some people will just say, look, Kyle, that's not my goal. I'm not interested in that. Okay, fair enough. Then, you know, there's no argument here. You do whatever you want to do. Uh, but I find that this way of communicating, taking this approach, not only changes minds of people who disagree, but also is a kind of communication that even those who agree with, uh, with you already appreciate it. Because, you know, when I do a show, I'm not just trying to preach to the choir. I'm trying to craft things in a way where even my biggest um, critics stop and go, you know, I don't like him, but he might have a point on that one. And then the process begins. So again, to reiterate, final point, um, and I'll reiterate the first point again here, it's a process, de-radicalization. Accept that. It takes a while. When you plant a seed, it needs time to grow. But the important thing is getting that process started. And I hope I gave you guys some pointers and some tips here that um, – can help expand the tent and make it so that the positions are so overwhelmingly obvious to such a strong majority of people that we're all willing to take more direct action to create a better world, to get people universal health care, to get a living wage, to increase unionization, legalize weed, to end the wars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I hope this helps. Okay. All right, guys, we're done. I love you. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of your day. Peace.